Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. That was my sponsor. He is of the opinion that my way of opening the show lacks zip and excitement. He is attempting to zip me up. <sighs> if that had the same effect on the viewers as it did on me, our audience will be too exhausted to watch the show. And that would be a pity, for it tells how to treat a wife who is too loving, too kind, and too thoughtful. I'm sure all of you husbands know this problem. And now, before we have tonight's play, a few words from our sponsor. Quite possibly his last ones. The Shamley Silhouette, yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I am your host, Zach Eastman. This is the second to last episode of the Shamley Silhouette, guys. We're very close. We're almost there. Um, although we may not be there completely even after the final episode airs, um, as has been discussed on the Shamley Silhouette, um, we, are, we were attempting to tackle every Hitchcock film if possible, or at least mention uh, the other films um, that we wouldn't get to full episodes on. Uh, to be honest, uh, this was a combination of both me trying to be realistic with time and the ability of guests, um, but also I wasn't sure what the reception would be for the show, let alone um, people's interest in wanting to continue to listen, and that's why we didn't do essentially a filmography breakdown uh, in sequential order. However, the response to the show has been overwhelming, to say the least, in terms of it, it was more than I ever thought we would get. And um, as a result, I've had to rethink what this series is over the course of its time. Um, at, this, at the point of this recording, I am still working out not just um, what the show becomes from here, but also what the subjects will be. And I've got it narrowed down to a couple options. Um, but and, and as far as Hitchcock is concerned, the question remains is, well, is there a way we can finish the series and then do something additional to cover the topics we didn't? And I'm here to announce that after the final episode, you may see every so often a trickling of what I'm going to be calling Shamley Supplements. Um, these are episodes that will cover not just things we didn't have time to discuss in Hitch's filmography, but also different angles of Hitchcock that wouldn't have been part of the normal process, whether it was the short films that he made, uh, specifically his wartime era ones, um, or if it's the influence on Hitchcock by other filmmakers directly. So there will definitely be an episode on High Anxiety by Mel Brooks, I can guarantee that, but we'll also have discussions on people like David Fincher and Brian De Palma and maybe break down one or two of their films to go into how they basically tie in tangibly to Mr. Hitchcock's work. Um, but once again, I cannot thank everybody enough for the reception that this show has gotten. And I am, uh, I apologize for being as ill prepared as I have been for this, uh, 
the structure of this show, but I think we've mainly covered what we've wanted to cover on this show thus far, which is the themes and the motifs and different figures in Hitchcock's life and his different collaborations and really get an overall sense of the man. Um, but as, as, as always on the Shamley silhouette, we're not quite done. Um, obviously this will be the final regular episode before we, uh, show our final ever episode. Um, and it's makes sense to, uh, discuss uh the fine finality of this hitchcock series um with a laugh uh i i can't imagine that everybody has been overly enthused by some of the more serious fare that we've had to discuss on the show although it has been interesting it's been light on some laughs um and uh what better way to go out than to talk some more hitchcock comedy and in fact this gives us an opportunity to talk not not just about the beginning of hitchcock's career but also the very end of his career um, in the course of Hitchcock's career, prior to him becoming the master of suspense, Hitchcock started, like many directors, being assigned different projects and different stories, most of them primarily melodrama or lighthearted comedy. And as we'll discuss with two films from 1928, The Farmer's Wife and Champagne, Hitchcock is not terribly interested in these films, but at least one of them has some interesting offerings of stuff that you will see down the line in his work. Uh, as we brisk along through the decades, we find Hitchcock in a post-frenzy world uh, getting ready to make and release his what would become his final film, Family Plot, from 1976. A film that, while not hitting the heights of frenzy, does manage to leave you and the legacy of Hitchcock with a wink and a smile. Here to discuss these three films with me is a return guest. You heard him for the first time on Shamley episode 8 where we discussed the two primary Hitchcock comedies which are Mr. and Mrs. Smith and The Trouble with Harry. And we've also gotten to talk to him about the various different ways Hitchcock promoted himself outside of the world of cinema. And it is my pleasure to once again bring back the one, the only, Phil Vecchio. Hey, thanks for having me back, Zach. You, I'm so happy that you're doing, that you're back here. It's, it's, it's so awesome, dude. Um, oh, we, I'm glad we made it work. This is amazing. I, I, I can't tell you, like one of the one of the episodes that I like going back to is our episode, primarily because we are talking about a time, a, a, an angle on Hitchcock that I think is discussed, but then quickly shoved aside in favor mm -hmm. of the more aesthetically pleasing details. And um, and obviously with the trouble with Harry, the beauty of that film is is that it's constructed as well as any Hitchcock film is, but it is a comedy. Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, well, uh, first I will ask, as I've been asking many guests in the post COVID nineteen world, how have you been? <laughs> you know, all things considered, we're we're doing all right. We're enjoying some extra family time, which is great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, trying to look at the positive things we've had some particular challenges um, as well. But, you know, all in all, just thankful to be, um, you know, to have remained healthy and, and have some time with our, our family, our kids being at home um, at an extra amount, you know, has been yep. pretty good all in all, you know. Yeah. If you if any of the listeners of this show have gone on to listen to the Mandarian Orange show, which if you haven't, why the fuck haven't you? But uh, there have been postings on uh, your Instagram of the puzzles that you guys have been doing. And it has yes. been a blast to watch the puzzles and watching you <laughs> get into the spirit of it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, yes. I've always been passionate about puzzles, but this has just elevated it to a new level. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, the quarantine provided a way for that, that 
that talent in you to blossom out. <laughs> yes, it has been great. I finished a 7,000-piece puzzle um, near the beginning of quarantine, and I'm now on a 5,000-piece, you know, to lighten things up a little bit. And, I, and so long as you don't get to the point where everybody in the house is doing puzzles and then they say, like, I don't want to do puzzles. I don't want I don't want to do this. I want to go outside. And then you go, our home is here, Susan. <laughs> <laughs> And then you smash shit in a room. <laughs> that's not. We a haven't gotten to that reference. point yet, so we're doing yeah, it's okay. Yeah, not a Hitchcock reference. That's a Wells reference, guys. He may uh, become prevalent down the line on this particular show. Ooh. Um, but we, uh, well, uh, not not on this episode, but uh, he may. I, I guess I might spoil it. He's one of the subjects that we're considering for the follow up series. So you know, that's um, nice. Yeah, it, but I'm trying to figure out a way to do it that hasn't been done already. <laughs> so that's that's going to prove difficult. Um, but uh, so I brought you down here. We're, we're, we're basically on the wrap up mode. This will be the last regular ish episode of the Shamley silhouette where we break down a film or two. Uh, and going back to the Shamley that you did, uh, for us last year, the, the, one of the things you were mentioning was just how much you were enamored with the early years of Hitch, the, the, not just the career of Hitchcock, but also watching some of the more of the silent films, which we don't get to discuss much on this show primarily because it's kind of tough to break down a silent film on a podcast when it's a purely visual uh experience however um we, we in talking hitchcock and comedy there are two films in his oeuvre that kind of hit on that spot one to success i would argue and one to not so much success um, these are the two films that we're about to discuss. Um, they are ones that are primarily on the bootleg end. Is that how you found them initially? Um, yeah, I mean, it, the first one that I was able to get a hold of was, uh, was the farmer's wife, which was available for a long time. I mean, I had old VHS, whatever random company decided to dump it on there. Mm -hmm. Um, champagne took me a lot longer to track down. It was probably within the last well, I don't know, like six or seven years that I finally was able to get a copy of it um, to actually watch. So, yeah, yeah, and not the, great. And, yeah, but and the and the, I mean, we'll, we we can kind of spoil it a little bit, but Champagne was not as much worth the wait as we would have hoped it would be. <laughs> <laughs> I Which, think it has some merits, but yeah, it's I, Farmer's Wife is the better of the two, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, I would agree. And we're gonna we we can go ahead and jump into. Um, a bit of the production history of The Farmer's Wife, which is wh what is available to me to break down. Um, and the the thing that The the Farmer's Wife, it should be pointed out, is that it's basically a rom-com. It's, yes. it's yes. basically a, hitch, a, a 1920s era rom-com, which, especially being a silent film, it uh, kind of tends... What I found interesting is that it breaks down our preconceptions of how a romantic comedy should function, but it also upholds a lot of stereotypes that need to go away in that genre. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, but, and now granted like the, the phrase of their time, uh, is, is, is a utilization here, I suppose. But, um, the, the key thing with, uh, the farmer's wife is, is based on a play by e Eden Philbitz and, uh, Adeline Philbitz, uh, Philpot, sorry. Um, and, uh, it was a play that was performed over 1400 times and it was just, it was something that was basically assigned to Hitchcock while he was working with British International Pictures. Um, and the, uh, the, the majority of this film, um, uh, is, 
is essentially a reconstruction job at this point because this is one of the films that did not have a surviving negative. And amongst the others with the Hitchcock 9 is the British Film Institute's $2 million project to restore these films. This one was one of the ones that got a restoration. So there have been different run times on this. So I was going to ask, like, the version that you watched for this show, how long was it? Ah, this is a good question. I'm glad you brought this up because I actually have two different versions of this um, from two different. And, again, the ones that I have are, you know, of the bootlegged nature. Um, I have not been able to get a hold of any, like, you know, of the redone versions. But one of them that I have is, like, over two hours. I think it's two hours and 12 minutes. Yeah. And then one, the other one that I have is, like, an hour and 37 minutes, I think. Yeah. So the one that I watched is the two hour nine two hour ten minute version, uh, and it's one that's available on Prime. Uh, and I think this has a lot to do with frame rate as well. Yes. Um, the final uh, version that has been available that sh- uh, the restored version that should be marked at 107 minutes from 2012 is done at a 24 uh, frame per second rate. So there's clearly some adjustment going on with these different bootleg prints in terms of how they are presented. Yeah. Um, and then with Champagne, um, I'll, I'll kind of push into that. Like that, this is another one of those films that was part of the campaign uh, to save. And they, these two have since been released stateside by Kino Lobor um, on video on demand. Uh, and they are part of, uh, at least the farmer's wife is a part of the newly released uh, Br- Hitchcock, the British years collection that you can get on Amazon um, or through Kino Lober's website. Um, so basically these are two films. Once again, we're dealing with the bootleg and how things need to get proper releases, which it would appear that there's more an effort than not to get these things proper releases within the last couple of years. So slowly but surely they're working their way towards securing those deals for distribution. The problem is also that as physical media declines, the release of these films is seeming more and more likely to be on the digital realm if we're not careful. But um, alas, you can't change the march of progress. Um, (laughs) I mean, you can reopen theaters. I'd love for you to do that. Um, <laughs> I miss. Wouldn't we all? Yes. Um, I'm going to be cautiously optimistic as I head into another movie, um, because obviously I don't want to get a disease in favor of watching uh, Sonic the Hedgehog again. So, you know, <laughs> right. I, I think there are better ways to spend your time. Um, but why don't we go ahead and jump into the Farmer's Wife and Champagne a little bit? Um, so, Phil, I, I've got to ask you, as a, as a married man. Um, if, if, if you, if your, if your wife, Janelle is a lovely woman, let's, uh, let's just assume for a second that she unfortunately passes away yes, and okay. you, Sad. you are forced and you are forced then by your, uh, by, by your gumption to seek out different people within your neighborhood <laughs> to, to marry and write yeah. a list down, a dream wish list with your maid, which I'm assuming you have. <laughs> oh, uh, of course. As, as we all do, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. We all have our maid, right? Um, cause that's the plot of this movie guys. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's, it's a wish list movie, <laughs> Amazon <laughs> wish list movie. Of, uh, it, uh I'll, we'll go through the, the credits of this film real quick. It's directed by <laughs> me and this, my, I made a funny movie, um, uh, produced by John Maxwell. He's not credited, but it's part of that deal with British international pictures. 
The screenplay by Elliot Stannard and Leslie Arliss, um, who is uncredited, based on The Farmer's Wife, the play by Eden Philpotts and Adelaide Philpotts, starring Jamison Thomas, Lillian Hall Davis, and Gordon Harker, and a slew of other uh, colorful characters throughout the way. <laughs> um, and uh, with uh, cinematography by Jack Cox, who uh, would go on to also uh, shoot, amongst other things, number 17, um, which has been notoriously ripped apart on this show. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, y- you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> the movie's, <laughs> yes, <laughs> the movie's yes. a mess. Um, <laughs> it's interesting to watch, though. I like, like it from that perspective. Um, and then edited by Alfred Booth. So... In describing the plot, it, this is where it tr- comes tricky for me because normally on the Shamley Silhouette, we get to talk about um, a film and break it down, including dialogue and also uh, different music cues and sound cues, how the whole range of cinema is being used. As this is a silent film, uh, the the key thing on a dialogue front would be these dialogue cards. Yes. Which I would argue are some of the funniest things out of context they ever. They are fantastic. <laughs> if you get some screenshots of some of these, yeah, you get a lot of mileage. Yeah, there's 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 a meme in every screen capture of this movie. <laughs> yes, yes, there is. <laughs> it is redonkulous. So the basic plot of it is Samuel Sweetland, played by Jamison Thomas, um, is a farmer whose wife dies. And shortly after, his um, he, his daughter marries and leaves home, so he's left alone with just him uh, and his two servants. Um, Arme- Araminta Dench, um, his housekeeper, played by Lillian Hall Davis, and my favorite spirit animal since Spike from Peanuts, Gordon <laughs> Harker as Turtles Ash, his handyman. The yes. man who does not want to do his job and <laughs> really speaks for the audience of, why are we why are we living this crazy thing called life? <laughs> Turtles Ash is all of us, Phil, and we yes. are Turtles Ash. He's the um, everyman. He he is he, talk about a character who the, Gordon Harker's expressions in this film are fantastic. He is <laughs> the way he works his bottom lip kind of yep. Oh yeah. That, com- rah, 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 rah. Oh, yeah, it's exactly. It, it's like it's 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 almost a crime that this movie isn't in sound because I want to <laughs> know I want to know how that character would have been played with sound. Yes. It's 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 just one of those fascinating performances that I can't get over after rewatching it a couple of times. Is that <laughs> he is just he is indignant. Is in you know, so as the plot goes along you know, like he he is put into the menial position after menial position, <laughs> and like and like, but also providing this weird ethos to the counter to the counter to counteract Samuel's mission, which mm-hmm. Samuel's mission in this film is to get a new wife because he's he's getting old and lonely, and he and Arminta uh, Araminta write down. Uh, the number of uh, a, a list of four different prospective women uh, that are in the town that he could go to to propose to, um, and uh, Ash's <laughs> Ash's basic philosophy on this is like women are nothing but trouble. <laughs> oh, <Yep>. oh, marriage! <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and the the greatest part of the whole thing is that he 
he winds up being the one that's actually right about it, which is just crazy. Like not, not so much marriage, but the ridiculousness of it. You'd see him as the crazy character, but yeah. he's actually the one that has the most sense about him. <laughs> yeah. It's it, well, it's because it, he, he ends up being correct essentially about the people that, uh, he is seeking out or yes. would seek out what the assumption is, is that who would he seek out as this pretty well to do farmer? He's not like struggling for money at all. Like it's, it, the, the finances of these people are very unclear. <laughs> yeah. It's two it's, servants. You know. Yeah. It, two servants. I think he's doing pretty okay. So I don't think he's struggling like the farmers in America here today. So I think yeah. he's, I think he's doing just fine, but, um, but he ends up being correct in the sense of just like, you know, these he's, he is kind of Samuel Sweetland is basically groveling for, yes. for, a, for a companion. And it makes, Jamison Thomas's acting choices supremely interesting um, as he goes. And this is not. And by the way, this is not us being better than the movie. Like this is just examining how a romantic comedy of this era was made. Oh, yeah. And, and to an extent also how for all that has changed. There's also a lot that hasn't changed. Um, <laughs> the um, that, like so he goes woman by woman to determine who would who will like basically to find anybody who says yes first right. um, i mean the first one he stops at is uh widow louisa Lind windit played by louis pounds and uh she is too independent for him and when he proposes to her and she rejects him the look on his face looks like the look of a killer. Like it is <laughs> yes. not the look of rejection. It is a look of like, like, like I was so the first time I ever saw this was years ago on a bootleg. And I was like, based on that look, I was like, somebody's going to die. Like, so this is a Hitchcock movie, except she, except, <laughs> ex except nobody does. She, she she's just like oh i'm just too independent for you whatever okay cross that off the list and well and i love i love the moment when he does that too because he says like don't think i'm gonna change my mind and come back to you and then oh. she she meant she's like oh wait wait so he stops him as he's walking out the door and he turns around like oh okay i'll have you back now and then yeah. she's just like oh did you want this drink and then he's <laughs> like all mad again and stomps out yeah it's 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 and it's an example of the brilliance of Hitchcock in silent cinema is to be able to like, we, that's a situation where like prior to that, we were getting a few dialogue cards, but very sparingly that moment communicates more about Samuel's actual character uh -huh. than any dialogue card we could get. Like yep. his desperation is comes full center in that scene. Um, prior to that, it's just subtle looks of him being prepared to go and look for this woman or uh, over the top expressions of passion to somebody like Louisa. So this is our first like real hint at the character that Samuel Sweetland is. And I can only imagine that the play is as, as fun as it might be, doesn't have the ability to capture the subtlety because there's right. dialogue in it. Right. Whereas, you have to rely on that pantomime to portray that emotion to the character, to the audience on uh, that's watching your movie. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that the, uh, the majority of the actors in this film are very good at portraying that to the audience and giving you clues. Um, as we move into the next scenes and whatnot, he's going to the other um, 
people um, who he has on his list, and much like the bride and Kill Bill, going one by one to cross him off. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I was missing was that uh, that that cue from Isaac Hayes at the <laughs> as he comes to each woman. That would have been the only sound effect I would have just placed in out of nowhere. <laughs> like, um, but he goes to first Thursday Tapper, um, who he had already had an engagement for a party. Um, and then he goes to marry him, the po- the postmistress, at the um, same party, okay. no less. Yes, at the same party. So there's two people on his list in one stone, and this is also the same party where Turtles Ash um, is is asked to be basically a butler for the day, <laughs> and but with no button on his pants. No, no button on his pants. And there's a wonderful scene involving sewing. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Just, he, but it's and it kind of goes. And by the way, in your version. When they're out in the garden and the 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 choir men are going out to sing, did they did your version have a soundtrack where it started singing a song? Okay, so this is this brings up an interesting thing because mine I I have two versions like I said, and each have completely different soundtracks, both of which are kind of atrocious. Yeah. Um. Oh, yeah. And so what I often do with the old with the silent movies, um, I'll watch it actually silent. Because to me, like, you know, the, the the vocabulary of cinema teaches you that, you know, the music informs how you feel about a scene. And so if you have this, you know, this music that was put in there after the fact that wasn't the original author's intention, the original director's intention, I, I find it can, like, influence me to feel differently about a scene, and it messes me up. I don't like it. So yeah. both of which I watch with the sound down. Yeah. No, that was a smart decision. I I tend to listen to them primarily just to figure out like what what were they thinking to put certain cues in here and whatnot. Because my version has the the that choir singing and it threw me out of the film immediately mm-hmm, mm-hmm. upon rewatch this week. Um, prior versions that I had watched didn't have that, so I was kind of taken aback. Going like I don't remember this at all. Yeah, but. Yeah. You know, one but, of the like, versions I have the the short version that I have, which is a better like capture of the the visuals. It actually yeah. has like this weird like synth score, like this totally like almost a dance beat going throughout the whole thing. It's it's atrocious. Oh, it, it, oh, it was Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's grandfathers, right? O, o, <laughs> yes, o, old exactly. Brent Res, old Brent Reznor and uh, um, uh, D- Julian Ross. <laughs> like I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but yeah. See, I I got those two to do the score initially, and and the, this little boy David was very enamored by my process, and he said one day he'd make a movie about a killer in San Francisco, and I told him that's adorable. Here's a cookie, and <laughs> <laughs> um, but so yeah, so like that's not important. I just needed to bring it up because it was it just it was the throwout of the century yeah, yeah. to like do that. And this is an example of just like because these films are bootlegged, they need some attention in this realm. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, uh, thankfully, something like The Lodger and even Downhill have been given scores that are acceptable for the for their time. Um, th- but you have the but you also have the option of turning off the sound. the The trade off you get is is that you have near pristine picture. Um, especially with Criterion, um, yeah, and and Kino Lobor does a good job with them too, especially with um, uh, it's not Hitchcock, but their ver- their releases of Nosferatu and the Phantom of the Opera are very good, specifically because they with Phantom of the Opera they have two different versions of it with two alternate scores, so they give you an option. Hmm. Um, yeah, it, oh, it's fantastic. I wish 
I wish it was technically part of the Universal Collection, but it's not because that movie got um, uh, tossed aside in public domain status. Oh, um, yeah. But um, but so anyway, he 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 he's rejected by both Tapper and um, Hearn, and he's basically on the ropes. He tries uh, the one last ditch effort, which is Mercy Bassett, uh, the head of the pub <laughs> of, the, <laughs> of this pub. Now, and he gets rejected again, but the the beautiful thing about a silent film like this, and especially just the the amount of things they were just able to do because they didn't have to worry about sound or restrictions in that respect, talk about, the, is this the scene with the most dogs in a movie? Because I believe so. <laughs> I saw nothing but basset hounds ready for the hunt, and all of them are friggin' adorable, Phil. <laughs> They're all adorable. This is... This is cute animal. This is cute animal time here on the Shamway Silhouette. Because actually, because in the beginning of this movie, we see two dogs that look adorable um, at the steps. Yes. Uh, as, as and they are just like it, it's it's Hitchcock going like, oh look at those. Let's get a camera in there. Come on, look at that. That I know we're trying to make a movie here, but these dogs just they're just adorable, and they look like they belong on a farm. Um, <laughs> so. But um, uh, Bassett rejects him. He goes uh, finally back to the house, and he's going over like, oh, "I'm a failure. I'm a. I'm... There's a lot of self pity involved." <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then he just realizes all of a sudden what we as the audience were all thinking, which is, uh, "Minta is your perfect soulmate here, brother. She's the <laughs> one who cares about you." And then they decide that they are meant for each other. And he proposes to her. And then the ending of the movie is uh, there's a side plot where um, uh, Mary Hearn and Thurza Tapper get into an argument on um, uh, if if Mary was being pined for by Samuel. So they go to confirm their little bet. Um, And it ends with them realizing, oh, no, none of them is wanted except uh, in that. In fact, it's Araminta that has been chosen. Um and I will point out with Thurza Tapper in the film when she rejects Samuel Sweetland, she says a phrase in one of the title cards that I will remember till the end of time. <laughs> she says, "You were the first man to accept my sex challenge." <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so, so, in the context of 1928, this isn't funny so much as it's uh, it's alluding to like a, a, a heavily flirtatious person. When you hear the phrase sex challenge today <laughs> with our dirty, dirty minds, it, it automatically conjures up the worst version of American Ninja Warrior I've ever seen. <laughs> yes, context is everything here. Sex challenge on NBC. <laughs> <laughs> so it's context is everything. And yes, keep in mind that like sex challenge at this point was more just like a battle of the sexes and that flirtatious manner that Thurza is involved in like. Thurza, it's weird to me. Thurza seemed like she was, she was more of a she. She was just she's another independent spirit who just kind of likes. She talks a big game, but she's not. She's certainly not like up to like you know actually being in a relationship. Which there are there are people like that, man or woman, um, you know, who can't you know commit to anything. But you know, like, but more importantly, throughout this film. It's important to note that, like, if you're going to watch this film, you have to watch, you have to have the context in mind of uh, 
the the societal class of men and women at the time, which obviously, thankfully, it has become different, uh, and we need to make sure it keeps becoming different and doesn't mm-hmm. revert back, guys. But um, the uh, the key thing on this is that there was a lot of fat jokes. There's a lot of uh, uh, notices of appearance and also what what men prefer in a woman, which I, I will say. This movie is very fat positive or, or uh, um, uh, husky positive because yes. Samuel Sweetland is looking for a brick house. That is yes. that is essentially what he's looking for. And I'm I'm like I'm, it, you know, and it can't be just Hitchcock, you know, going like, look, I want people like me to have a break. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it is. Although he does waffle back and forth depending on who he's currently pursuing. He's. Oh. I think if anything, it says more about his character's immaturity because he says he likes, you know, a woman that's bigger when he's talking to the woman that's bigger, and when he's talking to the woman that's smaller, he says he likes that because he's immature. He's know? he's 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 the toned down version of Quagmire from Family Guy. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, and without the very problematic parts of Quagmire. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like he's just he's just an immature child. Um, yes. But. But he is, uh, and like, and oh, another car, another card that come up, that came up that I was just enamored with, which is just like she's good to look at from behind. And Armenta points out, but you'll have to be married to the front end. Right. I'm like, what? <laughs> He's like, there's like, there's a difference between watching this for the first time and giggling at it at early twenties, and it's another thing to lo- watch it now in the world we live in. <laughs> Like, yes. And just being like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> like, um, but um, so, yeah, and that's basically the farmer's wife. Now, Phil, I wanted to ask you for the farmer's wife and then we'll jump into champagne for for a hot second because there's not much to talk about in champagne. <laughs> there's really nothing there. Um, but um, with the farmer's wife, I don't know if you noticed it, but I saw a lot of instances of the tricks that Hitchcock would put into his suspenseful films down the line, whether it's the um, uh, the imaginary images of the women that could be sitting in the uh, ideal chair, or right. if his it was his use of POV. There's a lot of use of POV in this film, and also the camera is directing you to where you need to look, specifically in one of my favorite shots in this movie, is when they're having the party at Tapper's and one of the uh, families comes in, and a little boy is shown on screen, and then the camera zooms in on a dish of candy. Yes. <laughs> Talk about the most epic candy shots before <laughs> Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, So I was curious, when you first saw this, or even when you were rewatching it for the show, were you picking up on certain things that you would then later see in Hitchcock's work down the line? Yeah, absolutely. I mean... In addition to the stuff you mentioned, there's a lot of use of shadow when they're, uh, you know, because the inner, uh, the inside lighting in the farmhouses kind of looks sort of natural-ish. So there's a lot of deep shadows yeah. um, as they're walking around. So that's a big one. Also, just his obsession with food that we see all throughout. <laughs> um, there's a fantastic scene in this one where Mr. Ash is sitting by the fire and he's left to, like, baste the... Yep. This big like side of beef or whatever it is, yeah. And he's got this his bread hidden in his pocket, and he keeps stealing some of the juices mm-hmm. from it and eating. And I don't know that scene just cracks me up because it's so bizarre and of its time. But also Hitchcock's food again with the candy at the party, and yeah. also when they're 
uh, there's a great shot of him looking out over the party. Well, there's, there's a couple of them at both different parties where they're looking out, but he sees all the people sitting around and imagines them all, like, all the food they're going to eat. And um, anyway, there's just a lot of food obsession throughout it. Oh, it, it, it's so much so that one, like, so there's two different portions in the beginning of this film that show the passage of time in some form or fashion. One is my favorite, which is um, uh, the laying out of airing out of trousers. Yeah, you see that through a through a chorus line of trousers being placed in different parts of the house to show the passage of time. But also, there's a side of beef that's being cooked and it's twirling around in a sinister fashion. And then when we fade in, that thing is cooked and ready for eating, yes. like yes. it is. <laughs> It looked fantastic, even from you know a hundred years ago, almost. <laughs> we we can't afford expensive crafty from the local bakery, but I got this here for you. We're just gonna all tear at it. We don't have any silverware either. We're just gonna tear at that motherfucker. <laughs> um, so, but that yeah, and it, it, it's it's fascinating how he's able to. This is an example of Hitchcock basically being able to make the most out of nothing, which is a lot of stuff he has to do in his earlier career where. He is the. This is after the lodger, and right. at the lodger, he has pro, he proclaimed that as the the first true Hitchcock movie, and then there's a portion in between in Hitchcock's career, which basically goes from The Ring from 1927 all the way down to The Manx Man. Um, in between, there's a lot of uh, films that you know he that don't necessarily tap into his exact sensibilities arguably mm -hmm. downhill um and easy virtue and the manx man hit on uh, on those topics um but they aren't expressly seedy or depraved the way a blackmail or a murder or right. um uh a even a secret agent number 17 ended up being like we gave shit for number 17 on the show but it is technically it is a hitchcockian film um, it's just assembled like a jigsaw puzzle where all the pieces were put in so, into water and then expected <laughs> to fit. Um, uh, so, but which actually that brings us to, um, so the farmer's wife comes out in 1928. There's another film from 1928, um, called easy virtue. And then the last film from this year that Hitchcock puts out and releases is champagne. Um, and it, it it we'll go through the the credits here on this. It's uh, produced by Maxwell for British International Pictures, uh, story by Walter C. Mycroft, and screenplay by Hitchcock and Elliot Stannard with Betty Balfour, John Braden, Gordon Harker again coming back to the Hitchcock fold, and Ferdinand von Alten with cinematography by Jack Cox. There's the thing. There's not a lot to this movie. There's. <laughs> Phil, do you want to break down this plot? <laughs> well, yes. I, it's funny. I was just talking to my wife, Janelle, last night, and I, you know, she she loves a lot of Hitchcock, but she doesn't usually delve into the silence with me too much, you know. Right. Uh, so I was telling her about the plot of this movie, and it took about fifteen seconds, I think. You know, <laughs> she's like, "That's it." Yeah. Uh, but basically, uh, there's a rich uh, debutante. Her father's a millionaire. She wants to elope with this uh, other rich person. She flies off into the Atlantic on their private plane to join him on his luxury cruise and elope, basically. There yeah. comes into the picture another uh, mysterious man. Nobody's given names in this, which I think is interesting. Um, through a series of fights, they fall out. And then she lives a rich life until her father comes to visit in Paris and says they're broke. Yeah. Then she lives 
uh, as broke for a little bit until she finds out once again that it was all a trick by her dad to teach her a lesson, and yeah. she winds up with the boy in the end. Yeah. So, that's the whole movie. <laughs> t- yeah, it, that's it. There's not much going on in it visually. There's not much going on in it. Like, there are, there are moments of Hitchcock putting his style where he can, um, you know, whether it's just creating some... It's basically Hitchcock going, like, I've got to do something with this. <laughs> like, there's, there's not... And it's weird because this is not the only time that Hitchcock runs into this situation. He has a film like Waltz's from Vienna, which is a sound film. It's not his kind of film, but he finds his own ways to make it interesting for himself. This is another case of that. And this being a silent movie, you know, like he doesn't get the luxury of any sound techniques he's going to get to do down the line. So right. he's basically kind of just stuck with the visuals of champagne glasses and anything of that nature that, you know, really just kind of like it it gets bogged down into nothingness. Like it's one of those films where, you know, this is a bit of a spoiler for our final episode, but I'll go ahead and give it here. Um, In talking with Adam Roach about the Hitchcock nine, uh, we were talking about the Mountain Eagle, which is the lost film of his that we aren't able to find. Right. And (laughs) he, he, he pointed out rather pointedly um, and he expresses this on his Hitchcock series that you can find, um, that if we were to find the mountain eagle, more than likely we wouldn't like it because he didn't <laughs> yes. like he didn't like it. He considered it rather boring melodrama, and so he never really like he never had any reason to really address it. We as film fans address it because we're like, no, we've got to have it all. But <laughs> <laughs> but this is a case of a film where. We're restoring it, obviously, for the posterity of this is the complete filmography of Alfred Hitchcock. Champagne is a film that just because it's saved doesn't mean it's good. We should always point that out. Like, not every restored film is a classic. Um, This is, like, his second comedy, too. So, like, The Farmer's Wife is a huge, like, success by comparison to this. Um, uh, And it's a critical and commercial success with The Farmer's Wife. This is... uh, expanding his visual technique to to tell a story he doesn't give a shit about there's not because that plot as you described is so simple there's nothing there's literally nothing there <laughs> there's not now i will in defense of champagne if i may yes it, it's not a perfect film it's definitely not i mean of the two farmer's wife is by far the one that i would prefer but there are some moments that are very enjoyable and a part of my experience with watching silent films is that the more frequently I've watched them, the more I am able to pull out of it. Because when you're first watching a silent movie, you know, you're struggling, at least as a modern film goer, you're struggling to follow what's happening and who are these people and what's the plot. Yeah. And so when you kind of know what it is and then you can go into it and look for some more of those subtle cues, you pick up more about it. And I think this one does bear some repeat viewing. Um, there's some real funny, like witty play back and forth between the boy and the girl. Yes. Um, oh, I for instance, agree. when she's trying on her gowns and he's like being sulky about it. And then she goes and puts on like a plain dowdy one and everyone's laughing at him and stuff. Like there's some funny scenes in that, you know? Yeah. And, and there's, um, the, uh, the whole, the whole mysterious man <laughs> at the beginning. Yes. <laughs> that comes to, to that, that comes to like almost nothing. <laughs> like, it's it's um, it's very much one of those things that throws me off of just like, well, wait, Hitchcock wouldn't just leave that thread dangling, would he? And right. he did. <laughs> like, well, but, okay. 
but he does, there's a, a, even with that, there's a pretty good little punchline at the end, at least I thought it was funny that the yeah. dad it reveals the letter from the father that he wrote to the guy that said, you know, prevent her from eloping at all costs. If he, you have to, then you elope with her. Yeah, that's exactly. how much he doesn't want it to happen. You know? Yeah, because he was hired to follow and protect her. And right. it's, it's, it's so like, it's not, it's not that it doesn't come to nothing. It's more just like, oh, like. This would yeah. have been a cool murder mystery too, right? Um, uh, because she there's a, there's that moment where she's like imagining the 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 horrible intentions that as like as she's in that cabin. So like, you know, like I'm I'm of the mind that this movie is not unwatchable, obviously, but it's hard to break down. Whereas yeah. the farmer's wife, you can break down because not just from the modern context, but also. You know, what does a rom-com by Hitchcock look like that's not Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which is more of a screwball rom-com? Right. What he's doing with The Farmer's Wife is straight up um, a uh, arguably like a British comedy of manners. Um, And 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 whereas Champagne is a little bit more it's a comedy that's also combined with this trope that existed in silent films and early talkies of a woman spiraling downwards. Um, now in yeah. the case of champagne, obviously it, the, 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 the saving, um, parachute or, um, you know, um, a thing that you can jump into with a fire department at the end of a fire. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, I know I'm an idiot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, it, the saving grace of, of her character is the fact that her father is in control of all things. And, and, the. Uh, combined with the whole mysterious man there to protect her so it's more like the stakes aren't real compared to uh, a film of this era that would show that downward spiral in a realistic fashion so right, i guess right. in a sense the the stakes aren't there whereas hitchcock would probably want the stakes to be there yeah. um there so is that- one moment where he tries to bring in some of those types of steaks, but it winds up being an imaginary. But I don't know if you remember this, where yeah. she's at the dinner, she's eating with the guy at the the burlesque place. That's not what they call it, but the, the big party house that she's working at. Yeah. And he says um, to her, the man says to her, like, oh, you shouldn't be here. Anything could happen. And that triggers her to have an imaginary thing where he takes her off and he assaults her. Yeah, and then it comes back that she was just imagining that. So, but that scene is very like, oh, this could be—is this becoming a thriller? What is going on? And then it's just all her imagination. Yeah, and that's why—that's why—that's what I was lo- alluding to within the sense of like there is there are things that are interesting in it, but they don't uh, add up to what you yeah. want. And I yeah. think that that's—it's more that like for me, this is a disappointment uh, yeah. more than anything else because there's a potential for something like a downhill or a. Uh, um, uh, or something of that nature where Hitchcock is playing into the spiral downwards. And from a woman's perspective would be very interesting this early on in his career, but it doesn't go into that yet. Yeah. So, um, so, but in, I think with the reviews of, uh, this film, uh, are kind of, uh, are, are a little bit poignant, but variety, um, had, was impressed by the technical aspects, but was dismissive of this film entirely. The reviewer felt the story is the weakest, an excuse for covering 7,000 feet of harmless celluloid with legs and close-ups. <laughs> I disagree with this review about the close-ups because that is a Hitchcock stock and trade that he uses fine in this movie. Yeah. there's The visual acumen of this movie is not uh, 
uh, at fault here. It is just the plot. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and he expressed to Hitchcock, uh, to Hitchcock expressed his frustration with this film to Truffaut, and he said the film had no story to tell. Arguably, he's right. Yeah, um, there is a place where this film could probably be a lot more um, uh, engaging and thrilling. And it's weird because it is a it is written by Hitchcock, and I'm assuming Alma has involvement in terms of her, um, you know, tightening up or punching up the script. But I'd have to imagine that both of them are basically going like, well, just do it. Like, we need need something to do at the end of the year. Like, just just fucking get it done. And you have to keep in mind, like, this is the third film Hitchcock has out in a single year. So obviously he's producing at a high rate. In between The Farmer's Wife and Champagne, he does Easy Virtue, which I would argue, and it's one that we'll talk about in a Shamley supplements, but I'd argue is much more fascinating and a lot more interesting to dissect by comparison. Um, and it's, um, but the, alas, what we have here are these two different sides of Hitchcock's comedy, one succeeding and one failing. And I would say, obviously, The Farmer's Wife is the one we'd prefer to watch out of the two, as you've already alluded to, and I'm yes. saying out loud right now. It's a film that will show you essentially how Hitchcock's humor would, what was the start point of his humor and where would it evolve? Because arguably, even though he's not writing the script, he's involved in the production. He's involved in like, okay, even if this story is not something I give a shit about, I'm going to be engaged in it because I've been tasked with this job. The thing that you can't say about Hitchcock is that he wasn't a dutiful professional um, for the most part. (laughs) And like now, obviously, there are things we've already discussed on this show where Hitchcock acted very unprofessional. But (laughs) I digress. At the beginning of his time uh, in the film industry, he was very professional and willing to do the work and get it done regardless. Even something he doesn't care about, like number 17 or Waltz's from Vienna, he puts into it what he can. Yeah. Um, and you know that brings up one other thing I just made me think of in The Farmer's Wife real quick another glimpse of Hitchcock's future is his dark humor he does get like a really good joke in that was was ruined for me again because of that the soundtrack that I listened to it initially the opening of the movie when his wife is dying and uh, her, her final words to the housekeeper to Minta yeah. are don't oh, yeah. forget to air the pa- the the master's pants right yeah and yeah which which leads to that to that uh, montage to that great yeah. scene but when you listen to it especially when I love listening to it silently the the joke is that her final words on her deathbed mm-hmm. are air out his pants it's yeah. it's a joke but it's also very dark that that's what she had to say at the end of her life you know yeah. Which uh, is very which, Hitchcocky, I think. <laughs> it, it is. It's something that it's a joke that you would find in a Trouble with Harry or even exactly. any of his straightforward suspense drama thriller mystery films. So yes. he's already dipping his toes into that. Uh, it's not just his sense of humor; it's also a British sense of humor, as we discussed on our last episode. Right. But he is arguably uh, dipping his toes further into on this film than in any other film in the silent era because it is at its core, a romantic comedy. And I, right. I would want to read the play to find out if all that dialogue is there or if this is stuff that was constructed on their end. But it's it's a good line because after that, the scene gets very somber and then that's what adds to that humor. Yeah. Um, the soundtrack that I had was fine on it. It didn't like, it wasn't going goofy or bananas or anything. But right. 
it does treat it more austerely than it is. So I think it's up to uh, a modern viewer watching it with that, you know, added score that is garbage to 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 engage with the story. And this goes with champagne as well. If you can engage with the story on an emotional level without requiring things like sound dialogue or directed music cues, if you can watch it on the merits of it's just it's pictures, you're watching pictures move, mm -hmm. then you are automatically able to process and dissect a film of this nature. And th and that goes for The Lodger as well. Like any of his silent films, you should be able to watch it without a score directing you, without uh, dialogue cards even getting in the way. Like the story should be telling itself through pantomime and through the art of screen acting. The thing that I take away from s watching silent films especially is is that the screen acting of silent cinema in particular is one that I think is the most underestimated form of acting because sound cinema essentially engages the last piece of the puzzle from the theater and ostensibly kills the theater in the long run from a like um, a huge populist status. So mm -hmm. the the result that you get out of something like um, uh, a jazz singer or um, uh, even if you were to have like uh, the some of the earlier silent films like the Broadway melody and stuff like that where you know they're part they're just doing flat out Broadway stage plays on screen you know you right. you, you you don't have the challenge in front of you to interpret the film through emotion pure emotion and pure subtlety so instead you're needing to be spoon-fed the dialogue and like character motivation it's why dialogue no matter how clever a writer is, there's always expositional dialogue or right. the character tells you how they feel. In silent cinema, you see how they feel. Mm -hmm. You don't need to be told. Um, and I think in particular with The Farmer's Wife, what's beautiful about its ability to work as opposed to, I think, Champagne by comparison is that you have a performance in uh, Jamison Thomas playing Samuel Sweetland where you know, he's a broken man. Like, he's a very broken man. Regardless yeah. of how goofy he's acting throughout the majority of this movie, <laughs> he is a broken, pitiful man. And he expresses that very distinctly and very specifically in the scenes where he's making the list of potential mates and also when he's broken down and then discovering that Araminta is his true love. Right. So, you know, like, there's that's something that you won't get in a movie... Uh, uh, from the modern era where, you know, we rely on clever dialogue to carry us through. Like, yeah. you know, there's a reason why, you know, I, I, I look at it as the difference between watching a, a film by somebody like Fincher as opposed to somebody like Tarantino, because Fincher for, for how good his dialogue is with any of his respective screenwriters the visuals are what stand out because he's telling that story through visual composition. Yeah. Tarantino does the same, but his dialogue is so powerful that that's what you're watching it for. <laughs> like right. you're, you're almost watching once upon a time in Hollywood for what's going to be said and not what you're going to see <laughs> until the very end, obviously, because, because <laughs> who, who could not, find that visually interesting <laughs> uh, and, but so so anyway we will end on the silent period with that note like which i'm glad you brought it up about that appreciation for champagne which it it, it brings the argument to the forefront that like yes champagne's not a great movie you should still watch it yeah give it give it a look give it a glance and see 
you know, it's important to also see where Hitchcock fails as much as where he succeeds. Right. Because it's important to understand where you get certain decisions that change down the line or are carried on throughout the line. Um, for more on that, see our episode with Marshall Rosales where we broke down number 17, Waltzes from Vienna and Secret Agent, where those are three films that don't always work one way or the other, but are important teaching tools for what we would get with anything from suspicion to spellbound to rear window. So, right. um, so we'll jump, uh, we'll jump in the time machine. Now. We're going to get into DeLorean. We, we don't need roads. We, um, and <laughs> I made a bunch of shit along the way. And, um, uh, so we we're jumping right all into the year 1976 with a movie called family plot. Um, now Phil, you had met, obviously you had mentioned in your episode prior that trouble with Harry was one of your favorites. Yes. Uh, it's not your, it's not your favorite. And, um, so, but I didn't ask you in that episode and I should ask like, what, when was the first time you seen something like family plot? You know, it would have been like when I was in high school. Um, cause that's when I, you know, before that, my parents started introducing me to a lot of them as, at a younger age. And so in high school, is when I started really like exploring out, trying to find as many different Hitchcock films as I could. Cause you know, at that point I was looking for VHS tapes at video stores, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it would have been somewhere in high school and, um, found it at, at our local video store. And I, I have always loved family plot. I know it sometimes gets, uh, you know, poo pooed upon, but I think it's pretty great for a swan song. I absolutely agree. Um, I have maintained throughout the series that the that family plot, um, the way I've spoken about it initially is we're, whenever it's been brought up, we've talked about it within the context of talking about the other works, and I and, and but but I haven't clarified my position as well as I could. I like family plot a lot. It's just that when you watch it by comparison to the other films that he made before it especially leading up like with the film before this being frenzy specifically, it yeah. feels underwhelming. But if you watch family plot just on its own merits, let's not even bring Hitchcock's legacy into it. Just focus solely on Hitchcock as a filmmaker. This is a fun ass mystery movie. <laughs> it is, um, And it's so seventies. It fits when it came out. Oh yeah. Like he is very in tune with the changing of the styles while still maintaining his own foothold in what he knows works and doesn't work, or at least what his impression is of what works and doesn't work. And yes. family plot finds us in an interesting position. So in previous episodes, we've discussed the films torn curtain and Topaz. And in another episode, we discussed frenzy torn curtain and Topaz are films that are made amidst the ever-changing atmosphere of the studio system and specifically where the young directors of the American New Wave would come in and revolutionize everything. Yep. So from a visual standpoint, the only film of Hitchcock's filmography in the, la in the very final years that holds a candle to the American New Wave is, fam uh, is Frenzy. Um, but Family Plot runs along the lines of what a 70s era comedy or 70s era light airy mystery would look like. Mm -hmm. um, it's certainly not antiquated in its visuals. 
apart from the process shots the process shots being the most antiquated of the of the of the function of this film and we'll talk about it a little bit as we dive in um but um the the from a production standpoint so this film was adapted from a novel called the rainbird pattern by victor canning a 1972 book um the original novel uh varies differently from the final product of this movie which was written by ernie layman um ernie layman also known for writing uh amongst other things north by northwest uh yes and he basically it's it's clear from production notes that ernie layman wanted to write this as faithfully as possible to the rainbird pattern as a novel and then Hitchcock said, "No, it said it'd be funny. What are you talking about? This is fucking hilarious!" <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and I, and amongst the uh, things that are changed is like there are not only is Blanche actually a psychic in the novel, but she also dies. So right. there's there's uh there's a lot of uh changes that are made to make this a much more uh. Uh, light on its feet Hitchcock affair while still maintaining a lot of uh, devilish dark tones um, throughout yes. the film. Um, now, this is the final film from Hitchcock, as been discussed. Um, this is coming into his 76th year on this wor- on this planet, and he is virtually on the ropes physically. Yeah. But Pat Hitchcock did proclaim that he was very ready to go and raring to work and whatnot. So he wasn't immobile, but there are certain restrictions that he had that uh, he was not able to do certain elements of this. Among them is um, the assistant director, first assistant director, Howard Kajarian, um, basically told um, the a story on the behind the scenes featurette um, where uh, Howard basically says, you know, like we're going to shoot. We want you to shoot the car scenes yourself for that sequence that where they're around the hill. And Hitchcock had told him flat out, look, what, how do you get that done? And then Howard would explain how um, uh, everything would be accomplished. Um, and it would be done through, you know, having a an attachment car and a trailer car. And then you'd have a car for the director to sit in. And he asked the he asked Howard Kazanjian, well, okay, so where does the director sit? And he told him where he sits, and he goes exactly. And then just that was the end of the conversation. And Howard, you know, basically explained there are certain things physically that he was not able to do at his age. So right. you know, like the other version of that that situation is like, look at me and how big I am. You think <laughs> I'm going to be able to sit back there, Howard? What the ever loving fuck? No, <laughs> but obviously much older. He's not that energetic anymore vocally either. <laughs> right. um, but um, but so the result of um, uh, family plot ultimately becomes through all this. As this is Hitchcock's last movie, it's interesting to note that he goes out on a, a, a pretty well-rounded entry point movie. <laughs> like, yeah, you could show this movie to somebody who's never heard of Hitchcock and they may get interested in Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, arguably, this film is it's specifically designed to be of that 70s airport novel kind of feel where it's brisk, it's airy, the characters are charming and wonderful or they're just outwardly devilish. Um, and my my final analysis on the film has ultimately been that 
it's comfort food. It's like much like yeah. much like Hitchcock's love of food, he knew how to make good comfort food. And this is a comfort food movie. Like you can put this on and not have to think. Or you can put it on and think super hard <laughs> because yeah. there are there are elements of this film that we'll talk about here that are uh, interesting to note, but we'll uh, we'll go through the stats here. Directed by me, uh, <laughs> produced by me, um, written by Ernie Lehman, based on the Rainbird pattern, um, starring Bruce Dern, Barbara Harris, William Devane, Karen Black, uh, Charles Nesbitt, uh, Kath- oh, sorry, Kathleen Nesbitt, Ed Lauder, Catherine Helmond, Nicholas Castellano, Edith Atwater, William Prince, and March Redmond. Uh, with music by John Star Wars Williams. That's yes, right. we finally talked about the John Williams everyone knows about. Hitchcock <laughs> worked with two John Williamses. First was an actor and also a badass detective in Dial in for Murder. And the other was John Jaws Williams. Um, <laughs> uh, with cinematography by Leonard J. South, who was a camera operator on other Hitch films prior to this, and edited by J. Terry Williams. Um before we go into the plot, I will note that this is a film that Alma was not as involved in. At the time of this film, posed in a post-frenzy world, Alma was recovering from cancer and then had a stroke. Right. The most that she participated on with this film in terms of its production was visiting on set, um, dropping off the dogs for um, for the day with Hitch so he could be like, hey, it's my dogs. Um <laughs> And or having lunch with Alma going like, I wish you were here like every they these kids today with their newfangled funkadelic music. They can't get a movie made. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so it's sad in a sense that the final it, it, what's interesting about Alfred Hitchcock's career and specifically where he is at this moment. The fact that Alma is not as involved already indicates this will be his final movie. Yeah. He was already going to be working on another film called The Short Night, where he uh, basically told um, uh, Herb Coleman to tell Lou Wasserman, I can't do it anymore, and left um, his bungalow at Universal. But, you know, if Alma's on the ropes, he's on the ropes. So their relationship is so simpatico at this point that if he if he can't have her around making a film, he's not doing it anymore. Right. So there's a bit of sadness amidst family plot is like, you know, you know, without having it being said that this is the final film. And I think that that was the impression of many of the actors and creatives, even if they weren't expressing it out loud. Um, and it's what's what's good to note, though, is, is that as as sad as this is, um, you couldn't ask for a more cheery movie to um, end your career on. <laughs> I I would hardly argue. And who doesn't want to end their career with Bruce Dern in your movie? Who oh my goodness! Oh, I want to do that. You know, we gotta. <laughs> we'll have to keep him alive in a I, I, in a cryogenic freeze. But <laughs> um, his but, hair is fantastic in this movie as well. Oh my I god! Mean. It's he only he can do bedhead. Nobody yep. else can do bedhead. Um, that is, it's unfair how good Bruce Dern is at bedhead. Um, <laughs> We'll jump into the plot now. Um, we open up on Barbara Harris as a psychic named Blanche Tyler, and she's going through the motions of uh, speaking to the spirit world for none other than Julia Rainbird, played by Kathleen Nesbitt. 
And Barbara Harris is wonderful in this movie. Oh, I love her. She, she's got an aloof sensibility combined with her scam artistry because in this film, Blanche is a fake psychic. In the novel, yes. she's a real psychic. But I would argue as we get to the end that uh, she is a real psychic um, <laughs> um, until she decides not to be. <laughs> um, so, But through this seance <laughs> of sorts, it ends... Uh, she she asks specifically for a nice shot of whatever alcohol is in her midst, <laughs> and, um, and she is um, basically uh, a su- she susses out Julia's uh, story and how it can pertain to money through information she gathered uh, from a source close to Julia. <laughs> it basically Julia's situation is that her newly dead sister had a baby boy out of wedlock and oh and it should be noted that Julia Rainbird was very very interested in protecting the Rainbird name yes because women did not do things of this era like have children out of wedlock and so you just smuggled children out of existence <laughs> like it's so talk about a situation that is so antiquated that even what we've been dealing with the past 4 years makes it still seem antiquated. <laughs> yes, yes. Like, out of wedlock is not a big deal by comparison to half the shit <laughs> that you oh, no. see. Um, but well, even the, in the movie, they she acknowledges that it's old-fashioned for her at that point. Right, but she and she also says, like, but I'm still rather old-fashioned when I feel like it. Like, right, right. <laughs> so, she's, so she's just kind of like, you know, look, I'm just having a crisis, a conflict in my heart here. Whatever, man. Um, like, so she says that she will pay Blanche $10,000 if the man, Eddie Shrewbridge, can be found. Um, so she gets in the car with Bruce Dern and breaks down the plot for Bruce Dern while also, um, engaging in a bit of sexual innuendo because this movie is full of innuendo. (laughs) (laughs) So much. It is, it is more obtuse than anything Hitchcock has ever done. Like it is straight up. A line in this movie, and it's one of my favorite lines. And by the way, I should say, this is not making fun of it. I, I genuinely love this. He's like, why do you always have me by the crystal balls? <laughs> like, <laughs> Or he's an actor. The, the character Bruce Dern plays, uh, George Lumley, is an actor slash cab driver. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, whatever. You got to make a living in order to make your art. I do it. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But, um, and I know you do too, so like, you understand. But he's like... She she's talking about giving a performance uh, later that night and he's you know, she's alluding to sex and he just goes like tonight you're going to get a standing ovation. And I'm like, yeah, but I think the way that Bruce Dern says it, he pulls off every one of those lines. Oh, like, oh, oh yeah. And yeah. And again, I'm in love with this dialogue because this movie has this movie has made the active decision within the first five minutes to be very carefree. And I'm on board. Because yes, I yes. much much like Hitchcock on the set, I imagine he's just like, look, man, it's just all fucking fun. Like it's just there's no inherent. I tried to make a new wave film with Frenzy, but nobody wanted me to keep making those. So you get this and just fucking enjoy it, Ernie. Make it funnier. <laughs> um, um, so they basically decide to start. They they start their investigation to break down um, uh, through whatever means they can to find out who Eddie Shoebridge is. And as they're driving, they uh, stop at a crosswalk and nearly run over a woman in a, bl- uh, a blonde woman. 
Um, but is she blonde? Well, we'll find out because the camera follows in one of my favorite Hitchcock uh, shots of the later years where we start on Karen Black after she, she's been um, nearly hit by the car, walking across the street into the station where she's going to uh, confirm that her diamonds are in her midst. Because this is where we meet Karen Black, none other than Fran, um, who is basically not speaking to us yet, but directing the cops who have then just given her a bunch of jewelry to take her to a helicopter so that she can lead them to a person that has been kidnapped, Mr. Constantine. And it's actually a really cool sequence to watch Hitchcock play around with this kind of kidnapping plot within the span of like three minutes. Right. <laughs> yeah. It, I, I can't imagine like that. It didn't pertain to every, it feels like this movie gets to hit different beats of Hitchcock's career in the subtlest yeah. ways or the biggest ways. Including the, silent film where she's not talking and she's talking through title cards. Exactly. Title cards. Now, that, now the only thing that I wish this film had, and this is going to sound weird, is that I wish that they would have done close-ups of her um, her dialogue cards that she hands to the police. Yes, yes. That would have that been cool. It would have been a cool little homage. Um, but, I mean, at this point, you know... We're, he, he's so established into filmmaking at this point that I think he doesn't need to do those close-ups of notes anymore, but he used to do them all the time in his films in the 30s yeah. and 40s. Um, and and he wasn't the only one. Other people did it too. But, you know, Hitchcock was never one to just stoop himself solely in nostalgia. Like, he was always trying to press forward and move forward as best as he could. Um, so uh, Fran gets in the um, helicopter with a cop, and the cop lands them near a golf course where... Mr. Constantine is lying unconscious uh, at the feet of none other than Arthur Adamson, played by William Devane. William Devane. Yes. William, William, Phil, William Devane. He's, <laughs> that, I love William Devane in this movie. Oh, yeah. I also like great. making fun of the way he talks. Because <laughs> it is like, well, it's, 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 a, it's a restrained Jack Nicholson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, which I know is something that he gets flack for of being like a Jack Nicholson imitator. I don't think he does it all the time, but right here in this movie, in this moment, <laughs> the only thing that's separating him and an axe at the, at the Overlook Motel is like one shot of whiskey and a hit of cocaine. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but plus um, he has those fantastic veneers, like those teeth. Like, oh God, it's. It's he's it's wonderful. almost like he just had dentist work done and wants to show it off. Like, yeah, yeah. He's very proud of his uppers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they 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 basically escape with this new jewel. Um, Fran takes off uh, a blonde wig to reveal she's a brunette, um, and they go back and forth about the the heist that they've just pulled off. And amidst that is a little joke that refers to Vertigo, in the sense that. Uh, Arthur does not want Fran. Arthur wants the woman Fran will become. So he right. gets to basically make the movie Vertigo with just a wig. <laughs> like, <laughs> look, like I, I like, I like the other movie, but it took too long to make over uh, Kim Novak. So I, I can just do it within five minutes in this car. Here's a blonde wig. Let's fucking do it. Um, so. They they wrap up their heist. We get to see their neat little bunker where they hold their kidnapped victims. That's looks very comfortable. I will say, like these, 
these two are very considerate. <laughs> they're Consider- nice kidnappers. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. They're not. They're not true assholes. Although we'll find out that Arthur Adamson is not a good person at all. <laughs> like right. he is a monster, um, and Fran is a victim of this monster. But um, they conclude their stuff for the day. Um, we cut back to uh, uh, Barbara giving another another reading. And Bruce Dern trying to get the keys to go do his investigation in one of my favorite scenes because she does the reading where she goes into the kitchen to talk to Bruce Dern to George and is looking for the keys while doing the reading. And he's like, it's fading away. It's fading away. (laughs) Like, did you see him? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, in the kitchen. It's, it's so it's so charming and delightful. The thing that the thing that you can say about Barbara and Bruce is that they are clearly the cutest couple that deserve their own series of movies, like a Thin Man. Like, yeah, oh yes, I would absolutely. love a Thin Man series with Barbara and or with Blanche and George. That would have been phenomenal. We'll yeah. never get it, but I want it. <laughs> um, and now, granted, if you were to do it, it would mean completely ignoring the Rainbird Pattern book entirely, which <laughs> well, <yeah. laughs> pretty sure Hitchcock was like, who the fuck cares who he is? Like, I, it, it's me, like Victor Canning, who the fuck? Um, so he goes and uh, interviews a woman who's, father was friendly with the show um was friendly with um uh the family who adopted eddie schubert because he her father was the chauffeur for the rainbirds right um and she basically reveals that eddie uh the Shoebridges, the people who adopted the young boy um were burned to death in a fire (laughs) (laughs) and it's pretty much assumed that the son set the house afire and basically died with them. So he goes to the cemetery and he discovers the burial plot of uh, the shoe bridges. Uh, it looks like an older kind of headstone. And then next to it, a brand spanking new one <laughs> um, yes. with Eddie Shoebridge's name on it. And in a wonderful scene where you get to see how uh, in shape Bruce Dern's legs were, um, we see a uh, a grave digger behind him approaching him. Like it's not a particularly fancy shot. It's just that it is set on Bruce Dern's pants for a long time, um, <laughs> and it's revealed that um, the that it, it it it's basically like it seems like this grave digger doesn't really know anything so much as he's just kind of like, well, yeah, that's mysterious, but who the fuck cares? I have another job to do, <laughs> like. Yeah. He's not he's not particularly informed into the uh ongoings of Eddie Shoebridge and what is going on behind this newer looking grave. So he goes to the person who made the headstone and we get our only instance in Hitchcock history of rock and roll music really playing anywhere because this woman has the radio on. <laughs> like the the and and the joke, it's a good old man joke where the the guy who owns the headstone making operation goes like, "Turn that racket off!" Like, like <laughs> I can't focus. <laughs> ah, but um, and then they go through the files and it's revealed that Eddie Sh- there was a headstone made years after the death in 1965. <laughs> like, right? And um, he just happened to remember that date. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Oh oh, this guy, Th- this guy, J- Phil. He is so good at remembering things slowly but surely. <laughs> yes. Come to think of it, 
Yeah. Now that you mention it. Yeah. Now that you met, it's it's very much like turn the, turn your eyes off and listen to it, and it sounds like a radio drama. Like, well, as I recollect, Shadow, this person <laughs> was involved in a bank robbery five years ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> or like, yes, Mister Holmes, I do believe that that prostitute there was strangled three days before the actual murder took place. Like. It's he's really good at this slow bur- and it's good comedy. I should say it's yes, really good yes. comedy. And the only way we can talk about it is if we make fun of it a little bit because it is a little. <laughs> right. You don't. You can't get away with this anymore. You can't have that kind of character go like, well, say now, I think maybe. Um, <laughs> but so regardless, he gets the name of the person who had, uh, or he gets a he gets the name he gets a description of the person, and. Uh, he, and he also finds out that there's no death certificate or anything like that. So he goes to an office, uh, to a, to the government office, to find out if the death certificate has been filed. Um, and this is where we get Hitchcock's final cameo. Yes. Um, you could say it was a shamley silhouette. Oh, <laughs> yes, you could. <laughs> it took 24 episodes, Phil, to get to that stupid joke. <laughs> I'm, I'm very well disapp- worth the wait. I'm disappointed in the person hosting this podcast, and I'm disappointed in myself for being dead. <laughs> um, but it's a good, it's a good shot. A production history fact is that Hitchcock was considering not even making an appearance in the film at all, and everybody was like, "Nah, Hitch, you gotta." And he's like, "Well, okay, I will. I guess, whatever." And um, so he does the silhouette shot. And he apparently went up to Bruce Dern after the scene was over. And he's like, did you see that? And he's like, yeah, it's your cameo. He's like, I told you, you wouldn't see me. Because <laughs> you didn't. It's his silhouette. It's, it's just it's, a silhouette. It, yeah. See, I'm, see, Bruce, I'm a comedy legend. You just don't realize it. Like, you know, Jack Benny, Bob Hope. Yeah, they're all fucking funny. But I'm the true god. <laughs> like, <laughs> so he finds out that Shoebridge's death certificate was denied um the the um declaration of death um which is you know normally in a real life case this is like a situation where like if somebody has been lost for how many years or no body has been declared eventually you can declare somebody dead under the law um it's it's the crux of the plot my favorite wife with cary grant so if you need a little history on it go watch that movie (laughs) if nothing else to watch irene dunn make you cry your eyes out that movie's terrific um, but, uh, so he, uh, finds the person who filled out the death certificate. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, none other than Ed Lauder's character, Joseph P. Maloney, who I'm, um, you know, I, in my head, I was just like, oh, that's, that must, that, that has to be, um, uh, what, what's his face? Um, who played Jackie Earl Haley's father. It has to be Jackie Earl Haley's father, (laughs) except it's not, but it looks so much like Jackie Earl Haley in this particular moment that I thought he was going to wipe out the scum in this city. So (laughs) um, turns out he was the scum in the city. Oh yes. It turns out spoiler alert. Rorschach was the scum, but no, more importantly, Joseph P. Maloney is the scum. He owns a gas station, but he's, you know, you know, George is basically saying, like, you know, I, there's a lot of money you would pay to know where Eddie Shoebridge is. And Joseph P. Maloney gets, you know, without getting Marnie-esque flashbacks, he gets Marnie-esque flashbacks to, oh, shit, <laughs> people have found us out. Um, so he goes, yeah, he's, he's like, oh, no, it, it, and then we should say where it cuts back to adamson's jewelry place <laughs> uh his jewelry uh, jewelry shopper um uh jewelry center he uh 
is going about his day as Arthur Adamson, you know, Arthur Adamson, yep. jeweler, um, a, a, a beholder of fine antiquities, uh, runs a legitimate business. And then Joseph P. Maloney comes in and we are suddenly given our bomb under the table, which is Arthur Adamson is Eddie Shoebridge. Yes. And in a scene that I think really, it's funny, it's two scenes that are basically one scene that show William Devane's talent in this movie. Um, it's easy for me to make fun of the way he's talking, but it's, you see, he's really a fucking genius. Um, <laughs> he's... Uh, he's going through the history of what he did and how Joseph was involved in it. And then Arthur Adamson's secretary reveals to Arthur Adamson that the cops are there. And that freaks out Joseph. And he closes the office door and he goes out there and he basically charms the pants off of the detectives mm -hmm. who are investigating the robbery that he himself committed. <laughs> yes. And it's funny that, you know, William Devane... I think he gives off this air of likability while not making you love him. It's just straight up like ability. Like <laughs> I like you. I don't love you. Like it's <laughs> you like him enough that you would not want to you you just don't want to you don't want to have him over to the house, but you could see him in the park and be just fine. Um <laughs> that's what I want you to play, Will. Now do it. You know, and be sure to talk through your teeth that you're really good at that. Um, <laughs> but um, uh, but he's giving off this air of it where, like, I had to a picture in my head. There's only two Hitchcock films where I feel like you could remake them. I think you could do a remake of Family Plot. More importantly, yeah. I think at his given his age right now, you may have to rewrite the character a little bit. Get Tom Cruise to play this role because <laughs> I could imagine him being just charming enough to throw the cops out of the direction <laughs> yeah, while yeah, still being like, there's something sinister behind his eyes. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but that I was just getting that weird vibe of just like, man, this is like early era Tom Cruise trying to like, you know, trick somebody. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. Um, but William Devane then goes back into the office and it's discovered that uh, Joseph has left. And in a great decision on Hitchcock's park, there's no sound in it. Um, not even a score. There's a, bit of a production um, story behind this is that John Williams um, or John Close Encounters of the Third Kind Williams was talking <laughs> to Hitchcock about that scene and he wanted to put a cue in there and Hitchcock had to be like, look, look, Jaws boy, listen, you, I think it would be much more impactful if you don't because then we get to read with the character and we're not telling them what to fucking think. Um, <laughs> and And it was a lesson that John Williams got to learn that would... I would argue brought him uh, even further to the forefront than he was before. Like it's, it's lessons like that, that you pick up along the way that make you a recipient of how many Academy Awards now? <laughs> like, Oh my goodness. Yes. <laughs> oh God. Like, I mean, he was, he was nominated for the rise of Skywalker. That's how far this goes. Or yeah. um, I'm sorry, the force awakens. So that's how far this goes. Um, so, you know, uh, the, it leads um, uh, Eddie Shoebridge to track down Bruce Dern's character with Karen in the car, or Fran in the car, sorry. And uh, they are outside, and Blanche and uh, George are arguing over the fact that he has to work tonight. And there's some more innuendos, some more puns. Quite a bit, yes. Yeah, but quite a bit. Like, I mean, like, and they are, 
you know, the, my favorite one is, is like, what are you saving it for? And he's like, sometimes it's good to have for a rainy day, Marge. Like, hi, I'm Bruce Dern. I haven't appeared yet. I, I appeared in the Marnie episode for like a hot second, but I'm back here for the full run, guys. Have fun with this. Um, um, uh, and so they're watching the whole exchange go down. And then George leaves and Karen Black as Fran has my favorite line in the movie. It's my favorite line. Okay. You better give me a plot synopsis because I'm lost here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you take a photo of that moment with the subtitles on, you have a meme worthy of gold. The oh, fact that, that nobody true. has done this on the internet <laughs> is astounding to me. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, she and she's great in this movie. We should mention Karen Black. You know, like big star in the seventies with five easy pieces and airport. Um, she and her later years are are filled with mystery choices, uh, amongst them being House of a Thousand Corpses. Um, <laughs> she's great in that movie. It's just so strange that she's in it. Um, but uh, she's she's basically slowly but surely getting away from Eddie's line of thinking because now. She's suddenly being told by Eddie, well, we've got to kidnap the priest who can identify me because the one thing that uh, could connect Eddie Shoebridge to Arthur Adamson is the priest that always promised he would look after the child. That's right. So we are then whisked. We are then basically whisked into uh, a kidnapping scene at a church. I mean, prior to that, we get our big food shot of the movie. And hamburgers. Yes. So now throughout Hitchcock's career, the food will suggest different things or kind of allude to stuff. And in Frenzy, the amount of odd but probably healthy meals that are being served to the detective in that movie uh, <laughs> to me represent the odd but healthy uh, new exploration of new wave style filmmaking that Hitchcock is about to do. So with hamburgers, my only assumption is like, look, this is a fast food movie. All right. Like it's not it's not high art. I know what it is. Much like this burger. It's something that's good and on the go. (laughs) 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 And it's not to insult the film, but it's it's just interesting that like the, the, the big food scenes in this movie are primarily like very basic foods. Like they are not there's not like a hamburger's pretty like like basic and they're not even eating it with cheese phil like there's no, no. cheese on that burger it's gross but you're <laughs> shoveling it in too i love how they eat <laughs> oh yeah 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 oh the dialogue while they're eating is is adorable because it's just like that's how a couple would just communicate when they're really in a hurry um right. <laughs> uh, but bruce goes out to the church to um track down this priest and uh just before he can uh set up an appointment with this with this uh with this father of the lord um this 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 man of god is drugged <laughs> in a great kidnapping sequence that involves Karen Black in bad old lady makeup pretending <laughs> yeah. to faint the father goes to the priest goes over to comfort her and then William Devane shoots him full of drugs <laughs> and then they <laughs> hobble him out now uh, it should be pointed out that if you are looking closely enough, you'll notice that there are certain shots in this particular scene uh, where 
the 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 frame of William Dufresne, William Devane does not look like William Devane. It's because he was replacing an actor who had already been cast in the movie. Um, Roy Thurlson was orig- was was initially cast after it was found out that William Devane was not available, and then five mm. days into filming, they found out that William Devane was available, <laughs> and. In what would only be compared, I would say now, to a Woody Allen type of action, uh, <laughs> he fired Roy and replaced him with William Devane. Poor Roy. Yeah, yeah. It's this is uh, this is one of those Roy Thinnis. Sorry, Roy Thinnis. He has a there's a story that Kazanjian tells where Roy Thinnis saw Hitchcock at a restaurant. And said, why did you replace me? And then just gave him a dead stare. And it was the most <laughs> uncomfortable thing he had ever seen. Like it lasted longer than it should have. So Roy Thinnis, he, he, he puts in five days of work. And the most that they reuse of his stuff are wide shots where you can't tell specifically that it's William Devane. But right, he right. clearly looks, William Devane looks a little bit shorter than... <laughs> the the person that's dragging this priest up the stairs. So I noticed the difference. And I think if I had not been told the information, maybe I would have just not even questioned it. But knowing that information, right, um, right. it's 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 pretty sad. And, you know, just just one of those things where I'm just like, man, like, you know, who knows how many people were replaced last minute on other things. Like, I think the big one that we'd know today would be in, would have been Stuart um um it, I believe it's Stuart Townsend was originally supposed to play Aragorn in Lord of the Rings and then mm. Peter Jackson was like no 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 get vegan <laughs> get the other guy get the, get that one he he he'll do a better Aragorn um but uh so at any rate the priest is kidnapped and uh Blanche and George then get a call from Joseph Maloney to be like, okay, I wasn't going to tell you guys nothing, but now I'm going to tell you something as long as there's something in it for me. So basically they think they're going to find out where Eddie Shoebridge is so that they can get the um, uh, plot moving and get, <laughs> get get him a fortune. That's the whole thing we should realize. It's like the beauty of this film is, is that Devane's working under Hitchcock-type paranoia that somebody's trying to expose his crimes. And right. Barbara and Barbara Harris and Bruce Dern are like, no, we just want to give you money, <laughs> and then we get a cut of it. Seems pretty simple, right? Um, but so they get a call to meet with him outside of town, and uh, they uh, they they arrive at the designated spot, which is a um uh uh off the road diner, um and like very Americana, by the way. Yes, like huge and not American- far from where I grew up, by the way. Really. Do you, do you want whole, to tell people where it is? Well, so the whole road scene, at least uh, according to what I've been able to put together, was done on the Angeles Crest Highway, which is up in the mountains, sort of above like Pasadena and uh, heads over towards Wrightwood in Los Angeles. So, I and, and I was born in Pasadena. So, so there you go. So you you were you oh my god, Phil, you were close to Hitchcock history. You that's you, right, right there, just yeah, exactly. just in the hills above the house. Fun fact: after we shot that scene, Phil was born <laughs> right out <laughs> immediately after. Not long, not, not long. long yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it took a while, and I and I I I technically died before he was born. But you know, let for the purposes of this joke. <laughs> no, actually, I was alive. Uh, we crossed over because he died in 1980, I think. Right? Yeah. So you were born in. 
1978. Oh, so. yes. That's right now. I remember I was the doctor that delivered you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it was. <laughs> yeah, after I gave up filmmaking, I became a doctor for like about two <laughs> seconds. <laughs> um, but so they, they go to have like a beer and wait for Maloney. And, you know, another little tiny little bomb under the table is that we see Maloney futz him with their car outside. So he has no yep. intention of meeting with them, obviously. He's been instructed by Shoebridge to kill them. Um, yes. And uh, they're, as they're waiting, a priest walks in, like a cl- plainclothes priest walks in with a bunch of kids and gets them all a bunch of food to have. And the priest sits at another table while the ch- kids have their fun or whatever. And then a woman in a red dress walks in. So Hitchcock <laughs> has gotten like not one but two digs in at Catholicism in this movie. Yes. And one of them much more explicit than the other. One's a kidnapping. This one's straight up. Look what this priest is doing. Well, he, there's also a great line of dialogue that William Devane has at some point where he explains the reason that it was easy to kidnap the priest was that people who, at, who people in churches are complacent or something like that. They don't, they're not up for action. They just want to sit there, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they uh, essentially uh, poke fun at it. Which, by the way. This kind of priest joke, if you, if anybody's listening or is like religious affiliations and they think this might be offensive, just just remember, this is before we knew all the shit going on. So this is Yeah, this not, is different different time even. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. This is and so this joke is tame by comparison, guys. Yes. Um uh, and for a, for a little more information about how religion is handled in Hitchcock's work, listen to the episode where Brad and I talked about I confess and it's it's mainly me talking about I confess and Brad going like yeah the movie was fine, um, <laughs> yeah he's I love Brad he's wonderful he, Brad who puts up the show on the feed not a fan of Hitchcock but <laughs> I'm glad I got we him can't on all episode. be perfect yeah. oh yeah no exactly you know whatever he, he likes Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that's just as cool there um, we go <laughs> um, but uh, so they they go like well fuck Blanche he's not coming so we're just gonna let's just fuck off. So they get in the car and they drive off and it's discovered that the brake line has been cut and brake fluid is spilling out all over, all over the street. And we get the process shot of the chase sequence, uh, of the beginning of this chase sequence, which essentially, uh, I would say that of all the things in this movie that don't hold up, it's the process shots in this movie of the car. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, you were alluding to earlier how this feels like a movie shot in the 70s. The only thing that dates these this film in, that beyond, uh, before the seventies is these process shots, and it's only because the, especially at night, you can see the lines around the actors. Yeah, like they are very visible where the the halo line, um, which Hitchcock had worked to eliminate those in films like The Birds, but something like this, it just seemed like it just kind of missed the. Mark, or it's something that was very visible when upgraded onto a 1080p format. Um, (laughs) And um, I don't know what, like, did it, when you first saw the film, like, did you ever get a feeling uh, with that scene that it's just a little, like, a little off by comparison to the rest of the movie? Because I feel like it's the one thing for me that kind of throws it off a little bit. Well, I mean, it definitely, it stands out because, you know, a lot of the stuff in the 70s was very much about just a realistic kind of stark portrayal of the way things are. You know, you've got yeah. Popeye Doyle where it's, you know, like your first uh, uh, born identity type of thing, you know. So 
when you have this where the rest of the movie, you know, you've got long shots of Bruce Dern walking up and down stairs, and then you have this that's very processed, it does stand out a lot. However, it also feels very Hitchcocky, and so it makes me feel a little warm in my tummy. Exactly. <laughs> as we said, comfort food. Like I said, like I mean, and I'm and I speak to it as it throws me out of the movie from an objective point of view. Now, if I'm being yeah. subjective, I'm like, no, this works in the universe because it's a warm blanket that I'm putting around my that's feet. That's right. <laughs> um, and yeah, that's I make very good fucking blankets, guys. Deal with it. I even my last film was fucking amazing. Um, but. So yeah, the, and I will say that the process shots, the way, the way they describe it in the behind the scenes featurettes, you would actually be under the impression that there these are the right choices to make because they make a convincing argument. The way this shot is designed, they never go outside the car except for the shot of the brake line. Right. So the whole shot uh, the whole scene consists of shots on Barbara and George um, via like looking in the window of the car. Mm-hmm. And then the, their point of view on the road or behind them in the rear view. So we yeah. never go outside. I mean, actually, there might be one shot of the motorcycles that are driving by. Um, but I think that's perspective still, though. Exactly. It, it is still perspective. Yeah, you're right. So then so it never leaves their POV. So yeah. it falls in line with Hitchcock. And the only reason that it feels off is because in the 70s, by this point, people were primarily using those trailer uh attachments to get car shots so that they could be in the environment itself right. and not in the process side. So uh the car crashes and uh Barbara escapes out the top. Meanwhile <laughs> George is stuck at the bottom and <laughs> she steps over him to get uh to get to to get out of the car and uh that for them to recuperate. There is a story about that where Hitchcock was just like, "Now I want you, I, I want her to step all over you, you know, like how women step all over men." And I'm like, "Oh, oh, 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 oh Hitch, oh right. Hitch, yeah, ah, uh, yeah, I, I had problems, guys, but anyway, though, <laughs> so, but they, they, they escape and then they, and then Maloney comes across them in his car and goes like, "Well, what are you guys doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> you know damn well what the fuck you did. <laughs> like, um, so uh, one thing leads to another. <laughs> Within the, with, Maloney tries to basically run him over, but he 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 swerves off and dies in a big old explosion. <laughs> yes, just tumbling down a fucking cliff. <laughs> like, it, it it's it's not funny in this film. But when I no. think, but part of me thinks about it, uh, like that being something that is spoofed later on in Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. Yes. <laughs> when Mustafa's <laughs> near the top of the hill, <laughs> like, just something in that nature of just like, like how many times can we kill this person? This, this, right. this death is extravagant. But so Maloney dies, and. We sh- I, I, I didn't mention it before, but I'll mention it now. Maloney does have a wife played by Catherine Hellman. She's just known as Mrs. Maloney. Right. And, you know, she's at her husband's funeral, obviously. And in a reveal, it's revealed that George is there, too, at the same cemetery that he was at earlier, um, looking at the Shoebridge uh, headstones. And he basically breaks her down to reveal um, uh, the name uh, Eddie Shoebridge is going under. And... It's driving her insane because she's had to live with 
Joseph's guilt as part of her guilt their entire lives. So he's he's she's very much like just fed up with anything to do with Shoebridges or Adamson's. And she kicks the headstone of Eddie Shoebridge. And from a 1080p perspective, an HD perspective, it looks like she kicked a hole or or like a small indent inside that gravestone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now I think the impression is more that her her uh, heel scuffed on it, but like from I a certain, think that's what's supposed to look like. Yeah, yeah, but I paused it. I'm like, it looks like there's a dent in there. <laughs> like <laughs> now, obviously, now, leading up to that spot, yeah. is my absolute favorite shot of the movie when they go from the funeral and he is sort of a slow motion chase almost through the graveyard from yes. a real high angle. And it's like, they're going through a little maze. I'm glad you brought that up. Hitchcock. I was love in, that Hitchcock. Um, it was told by Kazanjian that he was very insistent on a few key scenes. And this was one of them is that, that he was very insistent that he would get that. Now this is something that Hitchcock's done before, you know, high perspective and showing the path of the trail of people yep. um, walking about. And I think that this one's one of, I would, I would, I will join hands with you on this. Is one of my favorite ones that they've been able to do, because yeah. it's just working within, not just something that Hitchcock's done before, but also, it's in a cemetery. It's uh-huh. almost like it's perfect for Hitchcock. Like it's the perfect way to do that kind of shot. Well, and when I see that shot, I can immediately picture the little storyboard that he's got drawn up for it ahead of time. This is what it will look like. Make it look like this. Yeah, exactly. Where he's just like, look, I, I drew it for you. Apart from yep. a thought bubble, like for the characters, it's all there. Yep. Um, but, and it's true. Like this is, this film comes out in the seventies, looks and feels seventies, but it's constructed like Hitchcock. So if there's anything that feels off about it, it's more that it's more constructed than right. other films of the era. Now, this is not to denigrate, obviously, the mastery of you know Scorsese, Coppola, or Spielberg, or anything like that. But Hitchcock outdetails them all when it comes to his approach to filmmaking. Even a film by Scorsese, who is meticulous in his own right, is uh, not as methodical as Hitchcock is. Because right. Scorsese's working on a bunch of different levels because he's that energetic a guy. Hitchcock's like no it's 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 a manual it's a I created the manual for you people and I keep (laughs) using the manual because it fucking works um so it's a shot that I think represents not just not just the mastery of his craft and his ability to block his block his actors and you know directing them where to go but also it's a it's it's one of the last great shots in a Hitchcock movie I'd argue Like, it's one of the last great shots that feels Hitchcockian. There's a lot of moments in this film that are Hitchcockian by theme and tone, but not by visual. Yeah. Um, You know, outside of the process shots, which we just discussed. But there's also a lot of, um, uh, but there's a lacking of, like, a distinctive moment in family plot apart from this shot. Yeah. Um. Or, or arguably, I guess, also maybe like the the, the priest kidnapping, but uh, it just feels like that not everything is working at the same visual level. And this one, obviously, but as you watch the film, you see that there is still stuff there that is recognizable. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we get we get through that reveal, and William Devane, uh, working at his shop, is confronted by Fran, who. 
tells them that they can, you know, deliver back the priest, but that also Joseph Maloney dies. And in the hushed tones of William Devane goes like, oh, no, you're going to have to do it. You're going <laughs> to. And they're having this conversation while uh, assuming the facade that this is a transaction about to take place. <laughs> right. So it's actually kind of cute while still being very sinister. And this is the scene where Karen Black has lost all interest in Eddie. Mm-hmm. And Fran is now just like, well, shit, I don't want to work for this fucking asshole anymore, but I'm too, I'm, I'm in too deep, um, and so they're they're gonna their plan is to you know get the priest back, um, and meanwhile, George has been skipping work this whole fucking time, <laughs> <laughs> and and is chewed out by his boss to where he has to go to work that night. But he tells Blanche, like, don't worry, you just got to go down the list of Arthur Adams's in the phone book and just find the right one. So she goes on a journey with a, a very, very whimsical journey to find the right <laughs> Arthur Adamson. And it seems like every Arthur Adamson within the specific line of her county has decided to have significant businesses or graphic designs in their favor. <laughs> right. Everybody's got some form of sign and whatnot. I'm just like, there's no way that every Arthur Adamson has that type of design <laughs> budget for whatever business they're in. And my favorite right. one's the, my favorite one's the twin one. Of course it is. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey Art. Huh? And those twins look like they those twins look like they don't know what they're doing there. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're just like, huh? They just needed a pair of twins, and they were the closest ones. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. We we were told that there would be a, a $100,000 behind this door as long as we put on these mechanic suits. Yeah, 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 sure. Come on in. Come on in. Yeah, I'll give you a bunch of money. Come on in. <laughs> and Wait, is that Barbara Harris? <laughs> what's, what's happening here? All right, cut. All right, all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's 50 bucks. Yeah, I, I lied about the amount. <laughs> Um, actually, um, salaries are a good thing to bring up here. Um, Bruce Dern's character of George originally Hitchcock wanted Al Pacino. <laughs> and <laughs> yes, there's a reason why he doesn't get Al Pacino and it has to do with money. Um, <laughs> when, when Hitchcock made torn curtain, he really objected to the fact that he had to pay $750,000 to Julie Andrews and Paul Newman for the movie. And so he's like, well, that's it. I'm not working with anybody known anymore. I'm going to work with unknown people, and it's going to be fucking awesome. I don't have to worry about divas. I don't have to worry about fucking expectations. I can just do whatever the fuck I want. Um, but so Bruce Dern, I think he says he gets like about $100,000 for the movie. But, you know, Bruce Dern is realistic going like, yeah, why wouldn't I want to work with Hitch? <laughs> like, that, <laughs> right. that's a fucking no-brainer. Like, And he stops short in the production document of basically saying Al Pacino's a fucking idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> cause I would love to see Al Pacino in a Hitchcock oh, movie. Man. That, what would that even look like? It's well, crazy. this is before he went into hoo-ha mode. That's true. Yeah. So we'd get a laid back Al Pacino. I just don't know how interested he would be <laughs> because <laughs> I don't think he'd put up with Hitchcock the way Hitchcock would not put up with him. Like, yes. You have to keep in mind that Hitchcock is the guy who did not like method actors or the new more form of acting. Like, right. I think the closest actor that he could have worked with from this era is William Devane, um, where William Devane is coming up through that, but he also understands where to temper his expectations. Same with Bruce Dern. Like, Bruce Dern came from 
a new school of thought, but he had worked as early with Hitchcock as Marnie in the flashbacks. So he has right. experience in both fields. It's why Bruce Dern is a genius and most <laughs> other people are not. Um, uh, uh, but so anyway, he just says like, yeah, I got to go drive around a taxi for eight hours. So you just go look for the right art Adamson. You go through the montage. She finally gets to the Adamson jewelry jewelers. And she goes like, well, you know, she tries to confirm with her secretary with the secretary, do I have the right person? And she's basically like, yes, yes, but cra listen, crazy lady, I can't just tell you where he is. And then she breaks her down to the point where she's just like, all right, well, if you want to stop by his house, here's the address. You can tell him whatever you need to tell him yourself. She's so bad at her job. She's fired. The so bad. She's going to be fired the next day. If it wasn't for what's going to come up at the end, she would have been fucking fired. Like, <laughs> like, and this is, this is like part two of moments in Hitchcock where neighbors or acquaintances are very willing to give information. The first one being the birds where the neighbor of Rod Taylor just basically tells Tippy Hedren, Oh yeah, he goes down to Bodega Bay every week, every Friday, I believe, but you could go check on that later down highway 95. Like, <laughs> you know, like, like terrible people. Um, but so she tracks them down. They're about to take out the, take the priest out. They get the priest out of his, uh, their kidnap bunker, and it's a great exchange where, like, uh, all right, you're you're all ready to go. I'm gonna turn out the lights and give you something, and you'll go to sleep. And the priest asks, "Well, can I? I didn't get a chance to finish the book you left for me. You mind if I keep it?" And William Devane goes like, "With our fingerprints on it." Nice try, priest. Nice try. <laughs> and it's it's a great delivery by Devane. He's like, "Okay." I'm ready now. <laughs> this priest has tried everything. The, uh, the line before that is like, I didn't finish the chicken you uh, you, you made for me. <laughs> what was his plan? Was he going to be like, oh, well, yeah, we'll come and collect the plate and then karate chop him? Like, <laughs> he does not look like he could karate chop. Um, so they get the priest out and they get him in the car and then Barbara Harris is outside after they open the garage door and... <laughs> William Devane throws a hissy fit. <laughs> I have been dealing with you people for, for several days now, and it's very fucking annoying. <laughs> like, And she basically reveals to him, like, no, 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 no. I'm not here to make any demands. I, I know you've been... F I, I, I'm, I didn't realize you were aware of who we were, but I'm here to tell you that you're the heir to the Rainbird fortune. And his mood changes. Meanwhile, Karen Black looks and sees that the po the 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 father's vestments are sticking out of the car. <laughs> so neither she of them can't just leave it alone. Leave it alone. You'll be rich. But no, she's trying to hide it to make sure. Or another theory, she wants to be caught. Yeah. Because she's fed up with Eddie. Like, now you could read it either other way. I, I More than likely, it's just, oh, shit, we got to cover this up. We don't want Barbara Harris seeing what we've done. Unfortunately, she sees a whole body fall out of the car. And so... <laughs> She is taken to the kidnap lair. Um, meanwhile, George has been made aware of where she is because Barbara left a tip over at the cabbie stand. Um, and George comes in and basically tracks her down into the kidnap bunker. And by sneaking around uh, Shoebridge and Fran... And Fran's pretty much on the ropes where she's just like, I'm not going to do that. You're, I'm not going to do it. They were going to kill Blanche. And she's just yeah. like, I'm done with this. Like, I, kidnapping's one thing, heists are another thing. This is the line for me. And so 
as they're about to go collect Blanche, you we see William Devane's just like you you finally see the monstrosity he is. Like up till this point he's been a lot of talk and there's been innuendo about him burning his parents alive. But this is right. where he's cutting a hose and he just goes like I'm gonna stick one end in the tailpipe and the other in the window, make it look like she killed herself. And that's like it's weird. It's like it's the scariest scene for William Devane for me because it's him basically laying out what he's going to do. Yeah, he's uh, cold blooded. Yeah. Up to this point, he's kind of been trying to cautiously avoid this issue. Like even him asking Maloney to kill or to eliminate them was kind of like, well, you know, burglary ethics, you know, got to get rid of a loose end. Right. But this is he's straight keeping up, his hands clean still. Yeah, but at this point he's a straight up fucking thug murderer. So um so they go to collect uh Blanche only to be fooled by Blanche. She runs out and George and her slam them inside the bunker, locking them shut. And they and they remark on the fact like do you know how much they're going to be worth? <laughs> right. <laughs> um oh, cuz like she, and the thing is is that George does discover her. Um, and then that's how they basically communicate to each other, and that's how they pull off this plan. Yeah. And they were just like, you know what would be even more rewarding is if we could find the diamond. And we haven't talked about the diamond that they got at the beginning of the movie, but it's uh, very much a placing it somewhere where everybody can see, but right. nobody will know to think, which is they tape it. William Devane tapes it. Um, into the chandelier fixture so that it looks like it's just one of the many reflecting cheap-ass diamonds on a chandelier. Right. And suddenly, Barbara Harris, who up to this point has been a fake psychic, suddenly becomes a real psychic and basically moves and waves and until she reaches the the middle point of the stairs leading up where the chandelier will be, and points out where the diamond is. And Bruce Dern says my second favorite line in the movie, which is, Blanche, you really are psychic. <laughs> <laughs> and they are all excited. And she, and then she gets out of it going like, oh, where, where was I? What, what, what was I doing? And they're going like, you were psychic. You got one. You found the diamond. I'm going to call the cops. And then I'm going to call Mrs. Rainbird and tell her the bad news. And we get the swell of John Williams' wonderful score. We see uh, we see Blanche sit down at the stairs, relieved and happy that all is right, and then she turns to the camera and winks. Yes. And then that's the end. Now, before we talk about that shot, I will bring up a tidbit: is that there was a thought <clears throat> to end it with a shot of the diamond and Hitchcock is superimposed in it, winking. And huh. it was thought about for 15 minutes before Hitchcock said, no, no, <laughs> that might be, it's cute, but I think it also might be fucking dumb. So I just, no, 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 no. Howard, you gotta leave me alone now. <laughs> I'm old. My dog. I'm glad are... they went with what they went with. Then. Exactly. <laughs> so, and Barbara Harris in a 2008, uh, in a, in a, in a, uh, a later on in her career, in an interview, she actually said that she had turned down a Hitchcock role so that when she got this one, she had accepted. And she is proud of the fact that she's the final actress in the final shot of Hitchcock's final film. 
Yeah. And to my mind, the final shot of this film is the most important other than the shot we discussed above the cemetery. Right. Because, yes, Hitchcock was working on the short night before he made the decision of like, no, 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 retirement, retirement. I mean, Alma and I need our time. And to my mind, the only reason we can go into this spectrum of thought is because we know it is his last movie. Right. But there's a there's a part of me instinctively that wants to believe that even as Hitchcock is working on The Short Night, I have to imagine he's looking at his circumstances, looking at his surroundings. He's looking at the fact that Alma's not here on a frequent basis. It's harder to do certain things that I want to do. There are points in this production where I'm having to check in with my doctor and have them make sure that the battery in my pacemaker is working, <laughs> um, which is a, which is a true story. William Devane told this, that they were his first day working with Hitchcock. They stopped production on a shot, and they brought a box phone to Hitchcock. Hitchcock answered the phone, said, yes, hold on a second, put a huge megaphone up to his pacemaker to check the battery, and you heard the battery going off. And then the doctor confirmed it's okay, and he let it go. And uh, <sighs> Hitchcock told uh, William Devane as he's basically buttoning up his shirt again, going like, I've been told I'm fine, Mr. Devane. We can continue now. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. He's like, yeah, that's, that's right. I'm a freak with a robot heart. You've got to fucking deal with it now. Now, now act, act, or I'll get Jack Nicholson and really piss you off. Um, <laughs> that was mean. Um, but the final shot of this film, like he's, you have to imagine that he's considering all of this and going like, well, this would be a good way to go out. Mummy work under that assumption right now. But the other one is, is that, and I read this more in the line of like Hitchcock's going to continue doing work is his impression on this. So to, so then to me, the final shot of this film, uh, other than being kismet on a wonderful final way to end your career in film. Right. Is that Barbara Harris basically faked being a psychic for a second again. Yep. And basically knew where that diamond was from the get go. Right, or, and I think this is, because she, earlier on in the movie, she, even though she knows that Bruce Dern knows that she's fake, she is still talking, is, oh, I gotta talk to Henry, and he's like, stop it, like, stop it, you know, I know this is fake. Yeah. So, she got an opportunity, because one of the great things that psychics, you know, fake psychics will do is their cold reading, where they pick up things, and I think she saw the chandelier, and was like, oh, that's where they hit it, and she just went on her hunch there, you know. So, in a sense... Barbara Harris, while not being a psychic, is uh, a descendant of Sherlock Holmes because exactly, she uses exactly. deductive reasoning. Yes. Where uh, would they hide it? Yes. Oh, uh -huh. uh, oh! I made a secret Sherlock Alma. I made a secret Sherlock <laughs> Holmes movie. Oh, I'm a genius. Oh, I wish you were here. I miss you. I miss you, dear. <laughs> but so that's the end of Family Plot, um, and. Um, and and amidst the later ones, it's a scrolling credits, and I, I want to compliment um, John uh, uh, John Schindler's List Williams here. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to keep throwing that thing until it's a dead horse. Um, it never gets old. Oh no, it never gets old. Um, I'll, I'll, well, by the way, I should say the his score for Schindler's List is fucking incredible. Um, but um, <clears throat> uh, he um, when him doing the music with this, 
this is the last really notable compose. This this is a like one of the few notable composers that Hitchcock works with after Herman. Up right. to this point, the the composers are kind of they're not as known, and the, the Williams gets this job following his win for Jaws, and he basically gives a lot more epic stature to a Hitchcock score than we've seen. And what I mean by that is primarily that like Herman worked in an epic fashion when it came to stuff like North by Northwest and such. Right. But this score is the most modern sounding score. And like, it includes like voices of choirs for Madame LeBlanc, Madame Blanche's psychic scenes. And also incorporating that, um, that, that string score that is just very of a of a London area era in the Victorian era. Um, I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember the name of the instrument that they would have utilized for that, but it. it but well, they have like a synth a synthesizer going through yeah, quite a bit of stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That so that synth kind of score mixed with his normal penchant for, I would argue, operatic style. And I'm and keep in mind I'm not a music expert, guys. I sh- I should have been, but whatever. Um, <laughs> But, uh, uh, you know, he, he, I think, delivers one of the more re-listenable scores to a Hitchcock film that isn't Herman related. Like, yeah, that's good. <laughs> you could, and I would argue that it's, uh, uh, out of all of John Williams' work, it might be the most underappreciated. Um, it's a score that I'd want to hear Tarantino lift and put in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know like i mean it it's it's just that enjoyable and it works so well with the 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 movie that we're telling which is a lighthearted mystery right um and so the movie is released um it receives positive reviews um vincent camby of the new york times um wrote that it is a witty relaxed lark and that it's certainly hitchcock's most cheerful film in a long time but it's hardly innocent um, we don't have um, um, a Bosley Crowther review because uh, Crowther was out the door at this point. But we have one from none other than Roger Ebert, giving the film ah. three out of four stars, saying of it, and it's a delight for two contradictory reasons. Because it's pure Hitchcock with its meticulous construction and attention to detail, and because it's something new for Hitchcock, a macabre comedy, essentially. He doesn't go for shock here or for violent effects but for the gradual tightening of a narrative noose. Now, with all due respect to the late Mr. Ebert, (laughs) this isn't new for Hitchcock. No, no, no. (laughs) He made a movie called The Trouble with Harry. (laughs) Yes, talk about macabre humor. So (laughs) my assumption is one of two things, is, is that either Roger Ebert had not seen The Trouble with Harry or any other Hitchcock movie up to this point. <laughs> or it's just that he's working off of like, because this film, unlike Trouble with Harry, is, I would argue it's even lighter than Trouble with Harry. Like it's, it's yeah. a lot more aloof. So I think that that's what he's alluding to. But yeah. the way he writes it suggests that he hasn't watched <laughs> <laughs> it does sound that way. It sounds so strange. Um, Variety said it's a dazzling achievement for Hitchcock. Um, masterfully controlling, finely tuned shifts from comedy to drama throughout a highly complex mystery suspense plot. Hitchcock has created a film 
that has the involving detail work and teasing fascination of a novel to be read in front of a crackling fire on a rainy evening. I think Variety sums it up the best. <laughs> it is a blank. I make good fucking blankets. Uh, my, Linus uses one of my blankets in Peanuts. Um, uh, and then Charles Champlin, who I want to bring up his review because he's also the man who basically gave us the uh, affirmation of the legacy of Alma Hitchcock. He wrote for the L.A. Times. And he praised the film as atmospheric, char- characterful, precisely paced, intricately plotted, exciting and suspenseful, beautifully acted, and perhaps more than anything else, amusing. <laughs> and I'd have to imagine that um, the that that's a good way for Hitchcock to go out is on an amusing note. Yeah. Um. Now, now I will bring up that there are non-positive reviews of this movie, uh, and and one of them is none other than uh, Ebert's sworn nemesis, frenemy Gene Siskel. <laughs> the Chicago Tribune gave the film two and a half stars and called it a disappointment, finding that it descends into dull jokes, plastic characters, and a television sitcom conclusion. And with all respect to Gene Siskel, the late great Gene Siskel, no. And <laughs> and I will leave it at that because I'm not going to make any obvious jokes. Um, that would be rude. Um, from, a car, from a current standard, this film has a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 36 reviews. So those who are willing to review it all agree that it's just fine. Um, yeah. And uh, it, was re- it was released in the, during the bicentennial uh, and it was chosen to open the film, the Filmex Los Angeles International Film Exposition to honor American cinematography. Um, and the only real award it's nominated for is Barbara Harris gets a nomination for Best Actress, Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical. Um, right. So after this, Hitchcock starts work on The Short Night, and he, at a certain point, tells Herb Coleman to go up to Lou Wasserman's office and tell him that I'm done. And just one day he just decides it's, it's over. Yeah. You, and you reach a point in your life as a, a creative of any kind, you learn where your stopping point is. And I think Hitchcock had a lot of efforts to try to keep up with the young guns that didn't come to fruition. Alma's on the ropes. He's getting older and limited. He just basically assessed his reality. Yeah. Um, he uh, would go on till 1980 when he passed away. Uh, and thus is uh, the end of my fucking life. Um, there's, there, there's a sadness amidst family plot knowing it's the last one. But I will say that the way I've... Uh, always interpreted a, a filmmaker's final film is that I've never assumed that it's going in that the filmmaker knows going in it's their, that it's their final film. This right. is the one exception because of that final shot, but it's always like one of many notions that I have with it. But family plot upon further review for this series has extended in my mind as a good conglomeration of all of Hitchcock's themes and motifs. Um, there's some sexy banter. There's some suspense. There's a mystery plot of foul. There's clever, innovative cinematography. There's a unique perspective on food. Um, <laughs> there's 
uh, bombs placed under the table that don't kill fucking children. Um, and, uh, and there, and there are, there's a Hitchcock blonde in it, but he kind of plays with that a little bit, which I think is funny. Yeah. What's interesting is that this film, I think tends to hit all the beats in their own way. And so the result of it being comfort food comes from that very fact. Like, I truly think that the reason we can be enamored with this film is because much like a North by Northwest, it's hitting all the beats. The difference yeah. is, is that family plot is hitting the beats, not just of what led up to North by Northwest, but what came after it, because yeah. arguably it's just as sinister as a psycho or the birds or uh, even a Marnie or frenzy uh, while still maintaining a, a jovial attitude. And I think that, the only way Hitchcock could have gone out better is if he somehow made a movie that was scarier than Frenzy. And I don't think that would have been possible for him. No, I think it was the perfect thing to go out on. It really, I mean, I would have loved to see more from him, obviously, but it was, I'm so glad we had this that's solid that we know he got to work on all the way to, because it's always sad when, you know, a director passes during the middle of production or whatever. And, he got to complete it, and I think that was a nice thing, you know. Yes, and at the end of the day, you got you you got you got one last taste of the hitch man, the hitch. That's right. The, the, That's right. I, I've had a lot of fun on this show, being a ridiculous asshole, but it, the truth is, it's been a pleasure getting to rewatch my movies. <laughs> so, but yeah, so that that basically wraps up. Um, the regular function of the Shamley silhouette on the next episode, we will be doing our final episode, which will be a discussion with Adam Roach. But Phil, I want to thank you for basically wrapping up the intent of this show. I am honored to do it. Thank you so much for having me back. Not a problem. And um, really quickly, please tell people where they can find your amazing podcasting work. Yes, thank you. Uh, yeah, I have uh, two shows that I currently do. One is called The Mandarian Orange Show, spelled wrong on purpose. Mandarian <laughs> Orange Show. Um, and you can find that on Facebook or wherever. Just look up Mandarian Orange. We're it. I also do an episode-by-episode -episode podcast about family ties called Alex P. Keaton is My Friend. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to find as well. Just look for that. Yeah, and listen to um, uh, Mandarian Orange Show is one of my favorite ones to listen to uh, of the podcast I listen to because it's obviously I know Phil and Janelle um, uh, through personal interaction, but just also listening to two people who not only love each other, but have a loving family just kind of dissect their daily routine. Um, well, and, and they're, and, and not to mention their, uh, express interest in NES gaming and also your, <laughs> your, your fitness journeys that you've been going on, which have been wonderful to, to hear about, um, and watch on the, uh, Instagram feed. So, um, Phil, thanks again for, you know, bringing your love of Hitchcock to the table, you know, uh, Ultimately, uh, the, the, the big fascination point with this has always been how do people see these films of the past? And I'm happy to say that they look on them with fond eyes. Um, but that's going to do it for the Shamley Silhouette this week. You can find more episodes of the Shamley Silhouette on realnerdspodcast.com or on the Real Nerds Podcast feed on iTunes. Um, if the articles do return, they'll be coming long after the series has ended because it just didn't work out the way I initially had planned. But um, on the final episode... We will be talking to a gentleman who did more research on Hitchcock than I ever will do uh, and resulted in a 
over 18-hour podcast series called The Adventures of Alfred Hitchcock, courtesy of The Secret History of Hollywood, um, which you can find on Patreon. It'll be none other than Adam Roach uh, in an episode that we pre-recorded in March uh, with him uh, in the UK and me here in Denver. So, but until next time, good night. Thank you.